0: I mean, one thing that's really tough is like academic fields that have been around for a while have a sort of intuition or or aesthetic that they pass on to like new members about what's like a unit of publishable work. Like it's sometimes called like a publon, right? Like what kind of result is big enough and what kind of argument is compelling enough and complete enough that you can like package it into a paper and publish it. And I think with the work that we're trying to do Partly because it's new and partly because of the kind of nature of the work itself, it's much less clear what a publishable unit is or like when you're done. And you like almost always find yourself in a situation where like there's a lot more research you could do than you sort of assumed naively going in. And it's not always like a bad thing.
1: Hey listeners, Rob Woodland here again, uh, head of research at 80,000 Hours. Welcome back to our classic episode series with uh, what I believe is, is our last one for this year. This one made the cut because in talking about the challenges involved in using expected value, the need for worldview diversification and the wild difficulty of doing worldview diversification in practice. Um, it covers really essential content, the sort of thing that everyone should know a little bit about. And on top of that, Ajaya is just a very good explainer of complicated things. Uh, as, as you likely already know if you listen to her episode from this year, uh, episode 151, Ajaya Kotra on accidentally teaching AR models to deceive us. I looked back on the comments from our advisory group on this one from years ago, uh, and here's here's a little sampling. First, I would say this is one of the most impactful of the 80,000 Hours podcasts I've listened to. It was really motivating and inspiring to listen to an exceptionally talented researcher who graduated from undergrad just a year before me. Uh, Another went. I really like this episode, Uh, I think it's one of the best episodes in a while. I particularly like the discussion of Open Philanthropy's view of worldview diversification and the framing of where you get off on the train to crazy town. I found this much more compelling and understandable than any other pitch I'd come across for caring about short-term things uh, over the long-term future. And finally, a third wrote, uh, This might have been one of the best episodes I've heard so far. Ajaya's analytical skill to juggle different worldviews and lines of argument is amazing. And Rob's questions guide the listener nicely through the different lines of thought. All right, hopefully that is uh, sufficient to keep you listening. Uh, so without further ado, I bring you Ajaya Kotra. Today I'm speaking with Jaya Kotra. Ajaya is a Senior Research Analyst at Open Philanthropy, a large effective altruist-flavoured foundation which expects to give away billions of dollars over the course of its existence and which is 80,000 hours' largest donor. Since joining Open Philanthropy in 2016, she has worked on a framework for estimating when transformative AI may be developed, estimates of the empirical returns to funding solutions to different problems, and on how worldview diversification could be implemented in Open Phil's budget allocations. Ajaya studied electrical engineering and computer science at UC Berkeley, where she also founded the Effective Altruists of Berkeley Student Group and taught a course on effective Arturism. Thanks for coming on the podcast, today
0: Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
1: All right. I hope to get to talk about your work on when transformative AI might show up and also humanity's prospects for settling space. But first, what are you doing at the moment and why do you think it's important work?
0: Yeah, so I'm a senior research analyst at Phil, And like you said, Phil is trying to give away billions of dollars. We're aiming to do it in the most cost-effective way possible, according to effective altruist principles. And we put significant amounts of money behind a number of sort of plausible ways of cashing out what it means to be trying to do good, whether that's trying to help the poorest people alive today or trying to reduce factory farming or trying to preserve a flourishing long-term future. And so we call these big picture schools of thought worldviews because they're kind of like a mashup of philosophical commitments and heuristics about how to go about achieving things in the world and like empirical views. And so I'm looking into questions that help OpenFill decide how much money should go behind each of these worldviews and occasionally sort of within one worldview, what kind of big picture strategies should that worldview pursue? And we call these worldview investigations. And this is kind of closely related to what 80,000 Hours calls global priorities research, but it's kind of on the like applied end of that versus something like um, the Global Priorities Institute, which is more on the academic end of that.
1: All right. Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. But how did you end up doing this work at, at Open Film?
0: Yeah. So I found out about effective altruism 10 years ago or 11 years ago now, whenever Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save, came out. And I was in high school at the time and the book mentioned GiveWell. So then I started following GiveWell and also sort of started following some of the like blogs popping up at the time of effective altruist folks, including you and Jeff Kaufman and Julia Wise and a bunch of other folks. And I was like pretty sold on the whole deal before coming to college. And so I really wanted to do something EA oriented with my time in college and my career. So I co-founded EA Berkeley, like you said, and was working on that for a couple of years, still following all these organizations. And then I ended up doing an internship at GiveWell. And at the time, OpenPhil was kind of budding off of GiveWell. It was called GiveWell Labs at the time. And so I, I was able to kind of work on both sides of GiveWell and OpenPhil. And then I got a return offer and the next year I came back and I was sort of, I was actually the first uh, research employee hired specifically for OpenFill as opposed to like sort of generically GiveWell, OpenPhil, everything. So I sort of got in there right as like OpenFill was starting to conceptually separate itself from GiveWell. That's what, this was in July, 2016.
1: Had you been studying stuff that was relevant at college or did they kind of choose you just because of the general intelligence and big overlap <laughs> of interest?
0: I mean, I, I had been... You know, in my in my own time, like quote studying all the EA material I could find, right? So I, I was a big fan of Less Wrong, reading various blogs. One thing I did that put me on OpenFill slash GiveWell's radar before I joined was actually I was co-running this class on effective altruism. So Berkeley has this cool thing where undergrads can teach classes for credits, like one or two credits. Normal classes are like four credits. So, you know, having to put together that class on effective altruism was a good kind of impetus to deep dive into stuff. And they gave us a grant. So our class was going to give away $5,000. They were going to vote on like the best charity to give it to. So we got that money from GiveWell. But in terms of the actual like subject matter, I was focused on in university, like not really like it was, um, computer science, technically like an EE, electrical engineering and computer science degree, but I, uh, didn't really do anything practical. So it was like kind of a math degree. So generically being like kind of quantitatively fluent, I think is good for the work that I'm doing now, but I'm not doing any like fancy math in the work that I'm doing now. And we have people from all sorts of backgrounds at Open Phil. like something quanti is pretty common. Also philosophy is pretty common. Economics is pretty common.
1: Yeah. There's a very funny phenomenon where I feel, uh, people study very advanced maths and then on a day-to-day basis it it does seem to make a huge contribution to their ability to think clearly by their like willingness to multiply two numbers together on a regular basis like
0: yeah totally totally totally
1: yeah but that's the level of analysis you're you're doing but uh but for some reason it seems like maybe in order to be comfortable enough to do that just constantly you need to like actually start it train up to a higher level
0: so that's my line like i tell people you know it's probably good to study something quantitative because it like gives you these vague habits of thought. I'm not sure exactly how much I believe it. I think philosophy does a lot of the same thing for people in a kind of different flavor. Like it's it's more like kind of logic and argument construction, which is also super important for this kind of work.
1: All right, well, uh, we'll come back to work at OpenFill and how people end up in those roles and uh, how listeners might be able to, if that's the kind of thing they're interested in. But first, let's dive into this really interesting topic of kind of cause prioritization and, and worldview diversification, which I guess is, is a component of what we, what we talk about, as you said, as global priorities research. So yeah, at a big picture, what is the problem of prioritization between causes and, and diversifying across worldviews that OpenFill faces?
0: Yeah, so OpenFill splits its giving currently across three kind of big buckets or worldviews, which we wrote about in the 2017 cause prioritization update. So there's there's one big split, which is between long-termism and near-termism. I should caveat that everything that I'm about to say is kind of like my perspective on this stuff. And it's like, these are like really fuzzy concepts that to pin down and they're kind of in flux. So I'm sure that somebody else coming in here who's done cause prioritization work would put it slightly differently and sometimes disagree with me. But broadly speaking, there are these like two big splits that produce three worldviews. So the first split is the long-termism versus near-termism split. And this has been sort of Discussed as like the difference between the like person affecting view of population ethics versus the total view of population ethics, where roughly speaking, the person affecting view says that it doesn't count as good to create additional people who are living, you know, lives worth living, where the total view does say that creating an additional person who is living a life worth living is in the same ballpark as saving a life in terms of the moral good done. And there's something to expressing the split in those terms, but I actually think that the distinction is not like a purely philosophical distinction between the like long-termist camp and the near-termist camp. And I actually think the like long-termist camp is more into philosophy than the near-termist camp. So I think I would, I would characterize the long-termist camp as the camp that sort of wants to go all the way with buying into the total view which says that creating new people is good. And then taking that to its logical conclusion, which says that like bigger worlds are better, bigger worlds full of people living happy lives are better. And then taking that to its logical conclusion, which basically says that because the potential for really huge populations is so much greater in the future, particularly with the opportunity for space colonization, we should focus almost all of our energies, virtually all of our energies on like preserving the, the option of having that large future. So focusing on reducing existential risks.
1: Setting the scene a little bit, the, the main problem is you've got this big pile of money and you want to do as much good as possible with it. And you've got to figure out how to divide it between the many different problems in the world. And also, I guess, try to figure out when to when to dispense it, whether it should be now or you should save it and, and, and use it later. And basically, different attitudes or perspectives, like philosophical or practical, would suggest potentially very like focusing on very different problems. And then you've got a question of, Well, do we go all in on the one that we think is best or do we like split it across a bunch of them? And then how would you split it? So that's kind of the big picture problem that that you're trying to solve with this investigation. And then those are examples of like some of the most plausible worldviews on which you might focus.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, in fact, the question there is like maybe even more thorny than do we go all in on the perspective that we think is most plausible because- We could potentially end up in a situation where we want to go all in on a perspective that we actually think gets a minority of our credence. But it's a perspective like the long-termist view that says there's so much opportunity there's so much affectable opportunity to do good out there so much good more goodness so like you know if you consider a perspective that's mostly focused on you know helping people in this generation or the next couple generations versus a perspective that like wants is kind of like trying to be more ambitious and bring in this opportunity of permanently affecting the entire long- run trajectory you might say that even if you only have like a one percent or ten percent probability on the second perspective you should actually put all of your money there because it's positing that the world is like bigger or there's like more goodness in the world. So that's like one key question that we wrestle with.
1: Okay. So let's dive more into this kind of normative uncertainty or moral uncertainty aspect. Yeah. What are some approaches that you could take to decide how much weight to give to these different philosophical positions? I guess you're pointing out that you might, you might think you want to allocate them in proportion to their relative likelihood, but that runs into the problem that some of the views suggest that there's like a whole lot more good that can be done than others. And then, and then maybe that's the, that's the key issue that you have to find some way to work around.
0: Yeah. Let me quickly like lay out the three worldviews I was alluding to before. So the, the long-termism versus near-termism split is where this the long-termism camp is like trying to lean into the implication of total utilitarianism that because it's good to cause there to be more people living lives worth living than there were before, you should be focused on existential risk reduction potentially to preserve this like large long-term future where most of the moral value is on the total utilitarian view. And then the near-termist perspective... I wouldn't say it's a perspective that, like, quote, doesn't care about the future or has some sort of, like, hardline commitment to it's only the people that exist today that matter. And, like, we count it as zero if we do anything that helps the future. I think it's a little bit more like this perspective is skeptical of going down that rabbit hole of that chain of argument that gets you to the only thing that matters is existential risk reduction. And it's sort of like regressing back to normality a little bit. So this might come from skepticism of like a total view population ethics. It might come from skepticism about the the tractability of trying to affect existential risk or just like the general wisdom of trying to do things that don't have great feedback loops. So there's like this kind of, you know, tangle of considerations that make you want to go, okay, let me take a step back and let me try and like be be quantitative and rigorous and broadly utilitarian about pursuing kind of a broader set of ends that are more recognized as charity or like doing good for others. And that that isn't super strongly privileging this like one philosophical argument. That's how I'd kind of put that split, the long-termism versus near-termism split. And then within the near-termism camp, there's a very analogous question of are we inclusive of animals or not? where the animal-inclusive view, similar to the long-termism view, says, okay, you know, there, there are many more animals in this world than there are humans, and many of them are facing conditions much worse than the conditions faced by any human, and we could potentially help them very cheaply. So even if you don't think that it's very likely that animals are morally valuable, you know, roughly comparable to humans, if you think that they're, you know, 1% is valuable, or 10% is valuable, or even a 1,000th is valuable, then the vast majority of your efforts on this near-termism worldview should be focused on helping animals. And so this is, you know, another instance of this dynamic where, like, the animal-inclusive worldview cares about humans, but sort of ends up focusing all of its energy on this, like, larger population of beneficiaries. And so it's this same thing where, like, there's this claim that there's more at stake in the animal inclusive worldview than in the human centric worldview. And then there's a further claim that there's more at stake in the long termist worldview versus the near termist worldview. And so essentially, like you said, there's like two reasonable seeming things to do. One is like allocate according to a credence between these three worldviews and potentially other worldviews. And then the other is try to find some way to treat the things that each of these worldviews care about as comparable and then like multiply through to find the expected amount of moral stuff at stake in each of these worldviews, and then allocate all your money to the worldview that has the most stuff at stake, which in this case, most reasonable ways of doing this would say that would be the long termist worldview.
1: So- That's one way of dividing things up, according to, I guess, two different potential disagreements within moral philosophy. But I saw in your notes that maybe open philanthropy is leaning more more towards thinking about this, not just in terms of moral philosophy, but also just thinking about it in terms of like dispositions or attitudes or, or these worldviews as not just representing kind of formal positions that one might take on core like moral philosophy questions. Can you expand on that a bit?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the long-termist versus near-termist split is a good illustration of this, where like the, you know, this is a super important split that, and, you know, it comes up again and again, how do we allocate money between these two big splits more so than the animal-inclusive versus human-centric side of things. But it's not the case that everyone on the near-termist team doesn't care about the long-term future or like wouldn't do things that would help people that don't exist yet. So, you know, a number of the poverty and disease reduction work that their funding ends up helping people that aren't yet born because it sort of reduces the incidence of malaria in like a region or something like that. Or target malaria is a great example of something we funded on the quote near termist, Side of things that's trying to, that's like this very ambitious plan of trying to eradicate malaria entirely. And it's sort of commonsensically part of the case of that thing that future generations who might have faced malaria won't face malaria anymore. And that's sort of the way we think about it quantitatively. The difference, I would say, is that the near termist side of the organization cares about the future in a kind of a theoretical commonsensical way that like broadly altruistic people tend to care about the future. So, you know, they place value on reducing climate change and they place value on like eradicating diseases in part because future generations will be helped too, but they don't tend to go in for this like bigger world is better thesis. And then they also just kind of feel uncomfortable with basically throwing out all of the like, goals that seem like good goals from a commonsensical perspective of helping others selflessly in order to focus on like this one goal that you know reducing risks of a pandemic or like reducing risks of nuclear war that was part of the portfolio of things people cared about from a kind of common sense values perspective but they weren't nearly so dominant and it wasn't for this reason of like you know space colonization might allow us to have such a huge population in the future. I would characterize the distinction as like the near-termist side is like less into doing this kind of philosophy and biting that particular bullet. Not so much that it has a philosophical commitment that the future doesn't matter or like creating new people is always morally zero or whatever.
1: Yeah. So I guess one view would be that having these atheoretical kind of commitments to, to doing stuff is just a total mistake. And that those views should be ignored because someone just simply just hasn't inspected. They haven't really thought clearly about what they're accomplishing and, and what they value. But it sounds like you're a bit more sympathetic to the to the atheoretical approach. And maybe you think that there's something to be said for it, maybe even on, on a rigorously philosophical point of view.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there's necessarily something to be said for it on a rigorously philosophical point <laughs> of view, but I think there's something to be said for not going all in on what you believe that a rigorously philosophical accounting would say to value. So like, I think one way you could put, It is like open philanthropy is as an institution trying to like place a big bet on this idea of doing like utilitarianish, thoughtful, deep intellectual philanthropy, which has never been done before. And we want to give that bet its best chance. And we don't necessarily want to sort of tie that bet, like an open fill's value as an institution to the world that it can provide broadly, to a really hyper-specific notion. Of what that means. So, like, you could think about the long termist team as like trying to be the best utilitarian philosophers they can be and like trying to philosophy their way into like the best goals and win that way, where sort of like, you know, at least moderately good execution on these like goals that were identified as good with a lot of philosophical work. Is kind of the the bet they're making, the way they're trying to win and make their mark on the world. And then the near-termist team is trying to be like the best utilitarian economists they can be. Trying to be like rigorous and empirical and quantitative and like smart and trying to like moneyball regular philanthropy, sort of. And they sort of see their comparative advantage as like being the economist thinking as opposed to the philosopher-y thinking. And so when the philosopher takes you to a very weird, unintuitive place and furthermore kind of wants you to give up all of the other kind of goals that on like other ways of thinking about the world that aren't philosophical seem like they're worth pursuing, they're just like, that stop. Like I sometimes think of it as like a train going to crazy town. Um, <laughs> and like the near term aside is like, I- I'm going to get off the train before we get to the point where all we're focusing on is existential risk because of the astronomical waste argument. And then the long-termist side stays on the train and there may be further stops.
1: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I like, I like the idea that rather than think about this as exclusively a philosophical disagreement, think about it as a disagreement on the strategy question of what's our edge? What's our edge over everyone else who's trying to do good? And like one of them is, well, we'll, we'll be better at philosophy and we'll have like, we'll reach more philosophically rigorous conclusions. And the other people are like, I oh, know we'll be like better in some other way. We'll be like more empirical or like pay, be more careful more about, quantitative, about more yeah. quantitative,
0: exactly. I mean, I actually think the near termist side of the organization empirically uses quantitative estimates way, way more than the long termist side of the organization does. So like on the long termist side, we've talked ourselves into highly prioritizing causes where there are only like 10 people working on them. And so most of our effort is trying to like convince potential grantees, potential people who could be helpful in this mission, that it's like reasonable to work on at all. And like trying to fund people who are like trying to do the basic thing that we want to do, like, for example, reduce global catastrophic bio risks, as opposed to sort of focusing on bio risks in general. And that is where like almost all of our selection pressure has to go. But on the near-termist side of things, they're looking at lists of hundreds of things they could focus on, you know, like air pollution in India or like migration from low-income countries to middle-income countries. And like, they have a, they have a huge list of causes and they're, they're just like doing the math on the number of, you know, lives that get better per dollar. With each of these options. And so, so the feel of doing near-termist work at OpenFill definitely feels much more like quantitative and rigorous. And in some sense, feels more like what you would have thought like a cartoon EA foundation would feel like <laughs> because they have more opportunity to map things out.
1: So I guess we've we've kind of listed three cluster worldviews. One is helping people now, another one is helping animals now, and the other one is helping people and animals in the in the longer term. Are there any others that we should have in mind that you kind of have in on the on the short list of different hats that you put on?
0: Yeah, there are a couple of smaller ones. So this kind of always goes back to like, we want to be a strong foundation that's making the kind of most diversified bet we can make on like deeply rigorous, thoughtful philanthropy that is truly about helping others rather than like our kind of particular personal values on causes. And so within that, these really feel like the big three to us. I would say, but there are also sort of other things we would like to get experience with. So when we were starting out, it was important to us that we put some money in science funding and some money in policy funding. And most of that is coming through our other causes that we already identified, but we also want to get experience with those things. We also want to gain experience in just like funding basic science and doing that well and having a world-class team at that. So some of our money in science goes there as well. And that's sort of coming from a much less from a philosophy point of view and much more from like a track record and like philanthropy has done great things in the area of science and in the area of policy. We want to have an apparatus and an infrastructure that lets us capitalize on that kind of opportunity to do good as a philanthropist.
1: Yeah, I guess the, the science funding reminds me of this uh, kind of progress studies perspective, which has been generating a bit of buzz uh, on, on blogs and on Twitter. And I guess their they're thinking is, Something along the lines of, I don't want to just think about like all of this moral philosophy and, and theoretical stuff. But if I look back over the last thousand years, like what has made things better? I guess it's science, science, research, technology, research, economic growth. And so I do not know, exa- I don't even necessarily have to have a theory of how that's made things better. I just want to be like, I just want to keep pushing on this thing that seems to be like the fundamental driver of the world becoming less barbaric. And so they have the whole story about how they want to speed up, speed up scientific research, improve funding to direct it to better people and better projects and increase it and so on.
0: Yeah. And I think there's really something to that. So I feel like this isn't Phil's primary bet, but I, I could imagine in a world where there was a lot less funding going to basic science, like Howard Hughes Medical Institute didn't exist, then we would be bigger on it. It would feel more like, you know, going back to the bet of trying to do deeply thoughtful intellectual philanthropy to help others. We could have looked back and seen, wow, science funding, just basic science has been a really big deal for humanity. And then looked around and seen, basically nobody is acting on this and wanted to, to go in much bigger on the bat. And so it's really responsive also to like this thing you were saying about what we think our comparative advantage is. And we do think our comparative advantage is kind of more of a top-down kind of thinking, both on the near-termist side and on the long-termist side, where the near-termist side is kind of surveying this like large array of possibilities to help others in the world today and is like picking the one that quantitatively seems most efficient. And the long-term aside is like sort of stepping back even further and thinking about like at the root, what kinds of things even plausibly could be the most valuable thing to do on a total utilitarian perspective. So, so we're, we're mostly very top-down, but part of the reason we have the basic science program is this kind of bottom-up, very theoretical argument that like, look, this, this has been a huge driver of, of human progress and human flourishing.
1: Yeah, I feel like this has been a banner week for uh, the progress studies worldview, because you look at politics and you're like, oh my God, this is just, <laughs> <laughs> but every day there's some like amazing scientific breakthrough coming out. I guess on Monday, what we had alpha fold. I'm, I'm just trying to remember all of them off the top of my head.
0: I mean, the mRNA vaccine. Oh, the right?
1: mRNA vaccine. Yeah. So the vaccine stuff is coming along. It seems like the scientific community has really been killing it on, on, on COVID in the in the big picture.
0: Totally. Totally.
1: We, we like, yeah, I've made massive progress now studying the, the protein folding issue, which has been around for for many, many decades. On a, on a gut level, I find the the just let's let's improve wisdom, let's improve science thing to be to be quite appealing. Then maybe on on more philosophical reflection, it seems a bit more a bit more questionable. Do you want to comment on that?
0: Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, the other thing you mentioned as kind of part of the same thing, but I think it could really be broken off into a different thing is the economic growth worldview. So like the, the Tyler Cowen thing you were alluding to is very much, I don't know how much he leans on science so much as like growth has been really good. Like growth has been so much better for human welfare, you know, in the history of the last few hundred years than redistribution has been. And so that, that's something that it's interestingly, it's not clear exactly whether that fits on the, in the like long-termist camp or the near-termist camp and like could potentially become something that we like take seriously enough and think is neglected enough that it, that it might be like another worldview that we want to put some weight behind.
1: Okay. Let's, let's turn back to the question of how you then would kind of split all of the money that you have between these different mental buckets. You've come up with a couple of different ways of thinking about this. And one is uh, you call fairness agreements. What, what's that one?
0: Yeah, so just to set the scene a little bit, um, the question here is what happens when you have two worldviews, one of which values a certain set of try, trying to help a certain set of beneficiaries, say, and then the other values those beneficiaries, but also cares even more about a much larger set of beneficiaries. So you see this dynamic with like animal inclusive versus human centric and with long termism and, and near termism. And I see basically like three things that we could do that I would personally want to do a mix of those things. So one is, roughly speaking, allocate all the money to the worldview that has the most at stake, that says like the world is biggest and it contains the most moral value, which would be the long-termist worldview in this case. Two is allocate according to credence, like you mentioned before. And then three is the thing you were saying was called fairness agreements, which is basically like the idea being that if you imagine these worldviews as people that were given, like each were given a third of the money, before they sort of knew any any pertinent facts about the world. And then you woke up and you discovered, in an extreme case, if you woke up and discovered, like, actually we seem, like, extremely safe in terms of existential risk, the biggest risk we can think of is asteroids. And there's a 1 in 10 million chance that they kill us. And we have all these detection programs. And we've really determined we don't think AI is a big risk. We don't think bio is a big risk. We don't think nukes are a big risk. Then it would feel, like, kind of unfair to keep having a third of the money on the long-termist side, because the long-termist side probably would have made the deal before knowing anything that it would give away its money in these like very, very low existential risk worlds in exchange for having more of the money in these very high existential risk worlds.
1: Yeah. I guess a really, really stark example might be the animal person and the say human neotermist person trying to negotiate ahead of time what will happen. And then they, then they wake up into a world in which it turns out that there are no non-human animals. In that scenario, presumably they would bargain ahead of time to <laughs> uh, to pass the money onto <laughs> the all to the human focused person, because that's just like very right. efficient from both of their perspectives before they know what what world they're actually going to end up in.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that the basic idea here is is quite compelling. But the tricky bit that makes me not want to put too much of the capital into these fairness agreements is what is that prior, right? So I, I said something fuzzy, like these three worldviews are talking like, quote, before they know... The pertinent facts, but like, how do we approximate what they would have thought? So like, if we look around at the world today, you know, a very interesting question that is like really tricky to determine is like, is there more animal suffering on factory farms than we like should have expected or like less? And that's just super dependent on like what you thought your prior was. So like on an intuitive level, it seems like there's a horrifyingly large amount of animal suffering going on, but you know, it, on some sort of prior is that the median trajectory we should have expected, say, knowing what we did at the start of the Industrial Revolution about, like, incentives to create these kinds of systems or something. And then an even trippier one is, like, there are so many stars in the future. Is that more or less than we should have expected there would be? There's a lot of them, but there could have been more. There could have been infinity stars. So it depends on, like, where you, where you place that veil of ignorance, In order to determine how to do your fairness trades. And we have like a few ideas, but I don't think any of them are like super knocked down. So, you know, one idea is just look back on history and just sort of think, you know, let's take these three worldviews and maybe like since philanthropy was a thing starting in the 1800s or something, where in time would these worldviews have wanted to allocate their money? And so you might've thought, okay, well the global poverty worldview, it might've been better to transport that money back in time to the 1910s or the 1950s, like at a time when there was like even more extreme global poverty, but still the sort of means to try and address it because there was still like international communication or something. And then maybe you think the like animal worldview and the existential risk reduction worldview would have like wanted to have their money roughly now. So if you imagine making the trade, Back when philanthropy started to be like a real force on the scene, then you might say, okay, like global poverty had its moment more so than now. It's still very much its moment now, but more so than now, it was global poverty's reductions moment in the 60s. So that's something you might say.
1: How is this different from the same issue that you would face just doing the Rawlsian veil of ignorance to think about, you know, what moral principles should we follow? Because this isn't, this obviously isn't, is a kind of old idea. I suppose in that case, so you've got everyone debating behind this veil of ignorance, and maybe in that world, it's okay for them to see how the world is. It's just that they don't know which person they're going to be, and that maybe that, and so we just get rid of that one piece of information, and then they and then they go away and, and debate it, and, and that feels less arbitrary. Whereas with this case, it's like we can't tell them that much about the world because then they would know or corner to back more. Or, you, or I guess maybe you have to think. Well, they, they don't know what what moral views they have. Is that the thing to?
0: Yeah, it's sort of, I think that like the way to translate it into the sort of clean Rawlsian framework is like, you don't know which worldview you are, but you just see the world as it is today. And then you try to think about which worldview you would rather be on its own terms. So with the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, you don't know what person you're going to be, but you sort of assume these people all have the same values in terms of they like want to have better lives rather than worse lives. But the reason we can't do that so cleanly with the worldviews thing is like you don't know how to translate a standard deviation of goodness, say, across these different metrics that you're using, because that's like kind of the whole question of worldview diversification. Like the, the sort of thing we're trying to replicate is like if you had a probability distribution over how much good you could do per dollar before observing the world before observing something like taking away some information you want to like generate these probability distributions over like what is the chance of saving the world per dollar on the long-termist worldview and what you know how many hen lives do you save per dollar on the animal inclusive worldview and like how many human life years can you preserve per dollar on the human-centric worldview so, like, I mean, one, one potentially natural way to do this that I think is actually kind of my favorite is, like, just think about, like, what GiveWell and OpenFill people themselves thought as they were getting into this business in, like, 2010 or something. And just, like, when you just, like, actually notice yourself feeling surprised that it's so easy to help chickens, say, like, put more into that worldview. And that's something that's kind of been done organically. And it's also something we could roll forward, right? Like, we could be, like, we could agree now that if... AI risk is either like more tractable to address or bigger than we currently think it is, then the long-termist worldview gets more money relative to a world where like we're more fine than we think we are.
1: Yeah. So I guess with this, you've got something that's very theoretically appealing, but then it feels like the point from which you're starting or the views that you had and you're updating from just feels kind of arbitrary. And so it's like, why should we privilege the views of open philanthropy staff in 2010? That feels a bit strange. It has like a less philosophically pure aspect to it. It feels very messy at that stage.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think is like very trippy about this is that if you are rolling back all the way to the start of the universe or something, <laughs> then the long-termist worldview should basically give away all of its influence in all of the sort of smaller worlds that we could end up in, in exchange for getting maximum influence in the world where there's like the biggest infinity number of stars. Um, <laughs> you know, so I kind of feel like the the long-termist worldview wants to be like a super weird hardcore philosopher. So like, it's kind of fair to like take a slice from it on this basis because it would have made that agreement, I think at the beginning, because it's a very hardcore sort of beast, Just maximizing, um, but, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take it to zero because of that. So like, I would say, you know, I just threw out in my notes, like maybe like a quarter of the money should be allocated according to these fairness thingies. And like only some of that quarter should be this super hardcore, like try and think about the beginning of time and like try and think about if there are, you know, more stars or less stars than we expected. And then most of it should be these kind of less principled versions.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So just to explain that you're thinking if we wind back all the way to the beginning of the universe and we don't know how much matter and energy there is in the universe, The long-termist kind of mindset would say, well, if the universe is 10 times as big, then I want to have like 10 times as many resources because everything is 10 times as important. And so you kind of want to do it in proportion to the size. I guess then we'll have to think it's like the universe seems pretty big, but I guess it could be a whole lot bigger. Or I suppose also we could be earlier in the universe when we can access more of it. But it has this issue of being like, I have no sense of what the scale is because it feels like it's just unlimited how large it could be, right? So so it I guess it reminds you of that paradox that all numbers are small because you can just continue adding numbers forever and like even even a million, million, billion, trillion is still like smaller than there's far more numbers that are bigger than it than than a smaller.
0: No, no, totally. I mean, it's exactly the St. Petersburg paradox, which is this um, the the probability distribution you probably had going in to the, like, of what the size of the universe is and how much matter and energy there is, is you probably had most of your probability mass on smallish amounts. And in fact, our universe as we see it now probably is within the bulk of your probability distribution. But you still, like, assign this long tail to, like, ever bigger numbers and they dominate the expected value because of the kind of, like, shape of things. Because if you're, you're, like, pretty uncertain, then you're just not going to have, like, a sharply decaying, tail because there's like no reason for that. I love this and one. And so, yeah.
1: <laughs> if, if I'd been presenting uh, long-termism at the pub and someone had managed to respond with this one as a, as an objection to <laughs> focusing I would have uh, incredibly admired that. Is there a difference between fairness agreements and the veil of ignorance approach? Or is that, is that there's just kind of two terms for the same general idea?
0: Yeah, I think there are two terms for just the same idea.
1: Nice. Okay. So what about the outlier opportunities principle? What's, what's going on there?
0: This is something where like Holden might put it differently from me, but I think I conceptually think of them as the same idea as fairness or veil of ignorance. Like the, the, that whole cluster of considerations is like if something is doing surprisingly well on its own terms, whatever that means, then like it should get some sort of bonus. Because, like, if you imagine that they're sort of like business partners, or like you know, a, a family, these worldviews—they care about each other. If one of them is in like surprisingly great need, then the others would pitch in. Is kind of how I think about it. And then the the whole question is, what is surprisingly great need to these different worldviews? And then I, I threw out all these different ideas for how to think about what surprisingly means. And the outlier opportunities, I think, is just like a particularly easy version of that, where you're just like. You're seeing the empirical distribution of opportunities in each of these worldviews as a philanthropist since you got into the business. And if something just looks like you're purchasing so many points of X risk reduction per dollar versus anything you've seen before, then you just kind of want to seize on it. And that's kind of coming from this impulse that it seems like some of this money should be going to helping out the worldviews that have like surprisingly great opportunities, surprisingly great need.
1: I guess it seems like it's be tricky if you evaluate the mindset kind of on its own terms, because then you could have like, what about a worldview that says, oh, if you help just one person, then that's like fantastically good, and then it does successfully manage to help one person, and so it's like, oh, I'm I'm massively flourishing. This this view is is kicking ass, and then you say, well, should we get money to? That? <laughs> it seems like something's maybe gone wrong there. It's like you have to have to evaluate it on some slightly like higher level.
0: I, I agree. So I think there's something like there, there's like pretty different types of thinking that sort of determine, do you let something into the family of worldviews that are trying to be nice to each other and cooperating with each other is like one gate. And then the other gate is this fairness stuff that I was talking about. So like, you know, there, there are many perspectives on how to do good that like open field doesn't sort of let in the door, you know, such as like, you know, the the most salient one is like charity starts at home and like you should be trying to help people you personally know or your local community or Americans or something. And so we we sort of start off with this goal of trying to be very other centered and sensitive to scale relative to whatever else is out there and and just like really like give it your best shot to be this kind of impartial effective altruist while noticing when like, There are like bridges where you don't want to go. You you don't want to ride the train all the way to crazy town with all of your capital, although you like want to put some of your capital behind that, but trying very hard to be impartial. And then you like let in some set of worldviews given that. And then they do this more complicated fairness agreements and stuff.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Are there any worldviews that are kind of on the borderline of like, you're not sure whether to invite them to Thanksgiving or not? We're not sure whether they whether, whether they are part of the family. Like what would be, what would maybe be the ne- the next best worldview that's currently not, not in the family?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, so I think this will be, it'll be very different for different people. My personal one that I struggle with, I mean, there are two. So the thing I mentioned about the improving economic growth as a worldview, I have a lot of sympathy for and could pretty seriously imagine, like, at least myself wanting to let it into the table. The other one that I think is more, like, borderline and probably no is something about, like, improving civic institutions. There's something that attracts a part of me to, like, trying to clean up your own house and be kind of like um, the the city upon the hill, like, that, like, some dude said about America back in the day. It's just kind of, like, a part of me feels pulled to improving democracy and, like, sort of shoring up our kind of self-governance and all this stuff that I could maybe like pencil out through to either the like near-termist human-centric worldview or maybe the long-termist worldview. But the pull I feel isn't really coming from expecting those to pencil excellently or something.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose, I mean, one practical argument is the location that you can affect the most is the one that you're from that you're already imbe- really embedded in. And then maybe some really important thing is kind of demonstration effects, like showing other places how they can be great. And so if that's what really matters, then you want to focus on making the place that you are the very best that it can be so that other places can learn from it. And I think that makes some intuitive sense. And then maybe you're also adding in some kind of contractarian thing where it's like you feel like you're in some embedded in some relationship with...
0: Yeah, there's some flavor yeah. where it's kind of like... Yeah, with I mean when the George Floyd protests were happening and there there were just like reams and reams of videos of police brutality in the United States. I was just very affected by that and I was just kind of like I think when it's kind of like there's something I feel when like something heinous is happening in your backyard, like if the EA community were facing a thorny situation with a bad actor, then I would want to put a lot of my own energies that could have gone into doing my work job or whatever to trying to help with that if if I were in a good position to help with that. And that feels kind of similar with like some heinous things that are happening in the United States. And so that that's like maybe another kind of frame on it, which is kind of And It's kind of like, these are my people. I'm kind of responsible for this bad stuff.
1: Yeah. It's possible another intuition that's firing there. And I guess, yeah, maybe, maybe this is one way of thinking about it. It's like, Guiding intuitions that kind of push you to want to have a conclusion, it, yeah. It's like the like components of, of worldviews would be you're like looking at looking at police just beating up peaceful protesters, and you think, oh wow, like the military services are like the armed forces that are supposed to represent this country are kind of out of control and they're no longer under civilian control, and that historically is incredibly alarming. That tends to end really badly, and so you're like, oh, this is a this is a fire. I have to like put out the fire in my house before I continue like improving yeah. the joinery.
0: I mean, I guess like anti-authoritarianism is maybe like an umbrella you could put on this kind of worldview, sort of like the freedom worldview. Like we don't have a lot behind that stuff like human rights and freedom of speech and like anti-censorship and anti-police brutality. There's something attractive to me about from like a health of the nation, health of the world point of view for, to all of those things.
1: Yeah. One thing that's attractive about the kind of pro-science or pro-learning worldview is that it allows you to just kind of punt to people in the future who hopefully will be more informed than you. So you say like, look, I, d- I don't know like what a utopia we want to build. And-, and I don't really know how to get there. But like one thing I can do is add my brick to the wall of just like making humanity as a whole more wiser and more informed. And that's really the best that I can hope to do. And I, and I can definitely see the intuition behind that kind of worldview. Yeah. I suppose all of these other approaches have kind of been trying to avoid that <laughs> they're trying to avoid the extremism or the fanaticism issue that you could have one worldview that just dominates all of them. Is there anyone who speaks up in Phil for just like being fanatical?
0: You know, I feel like we all have sort of, there's definitely a spectrum in terms of how much, if each of us were doing this sort of complicated calculus of thinking about how much to put into each of these worldviews, we would definitely differ in terms of the share that would go to long-termism. I don't know if we would differ by a ton. Like, I don't know that if uh, the sort of most pro-long-termism and least pro-long-termism has like more than a factor of two or something. So I, I don't think there's somebody that's like really planting their flag on like super, super pro fanaticism. Maybe there is, I'm not sure. I think for me personally, I was more pro, like more more pro going all in on the astronomical waste argument before thinking about some of the like further weird things that come up as the train keeps moving to crazy town. Like one of which is the thing that I mentioned about the, at the beginning of time, the long-termist worldview probably would have traded off almost all of its influence in almost all of the worlds. Almost all being the like mathematical (laughs) definition of almost all, which is like all but one or something. Uh, And and then another one being the various philosophical arguments that suggest that if you believe there is going to be a long-term future, you run into various like confusing questions. So like one confusing question is captured in the doomsday argument, which is like, you know, you should be very surprised to find yourself super early In the history of a very long world, but perhaps much less surprised to find yourself super early in the history of like a relatively short world. So maybe you should think that existential risk is much larger and much more inescapable than you currently think it is. And then another is the simulation argument, which is like, you know if there's a giant future world and they're running all sorts of computations some smallish fraction of their computations might be simulating a world like ours like namely a world that's kind of on the cusp of potentially space colonization becoming very large and so like there's there's a lot of stuff you run into where you're like wow the world is like really maybe really not at all what it seems like and i think after like marinating in all of that like i didn't end up with any particular conclusions that i wanted to like you know, plant my flag on or anything, but I sort of was like, okay, you know, actually this line of thinking takes me to a place weirder than I am comfortable with. And I sort of therefore have sympathy for people for whom the immediately previous stop was weirder than they were comfortable with. And I was sort of more able to like, listen to the parts of myself that found that kind of uncomfortable.
1: Let's come back to that in just a second. But first, what are some of the kind of non-philosophical, just like purely pragmatic reasons to want to hedge your bets a bit more and spread across across different areas? It seems like there's, to me, almost that they're, they're more persuasive maybe than these worldview diversification considerations.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the thing I was saying earlier about Phil as an institution wants to bet on like scope sensitive, deeply thoughtful philanthropy. That hasn't been done. And we don't want to have that whole bet ruined and make Phil look like a failure Because we sort of chose to put all of the capital that could be going to like a broad array of sort of thoughtful, scope, sensitive philanthropy into one type of philanthropy that has like a number of sort of practical disadvantages, such as not being able to like learn and correct as you go or like not seeing impact in your lifetime or like having causal attribution be really hard
1: there's also just declining returns right so that's one reason that you would always always kind of want to spread out across different areas is that you might just find that you're beginning to struggle to find really good opportunities within any any one particular area
0: though i do think the i think the declining returns reason for diversification applies much more within a worldview than across worldviews because Hmm. the like long-termist worldview so the long-termist worldview it just like that worldview doesn't ever think that its next dollar should go to something aimed at helping humans in the present because it thinks the future is whatever, 10 to the 30 times larger than the present. So like even super lottery ticket bank shot opportunities to help the future, including just saving to wait for something to come up, like in the Phil Trammell paper that was recently released, will pretty much always beat sort of from within the worldview, giving it to near-termist causes. But the declining returns thing is is certainly the reason why we have like more than one focus area within each worldview, you know, like why we have, we're sort of working on both AI and biosecurity. We think that AI risk is probably the bigger problem, but we think that the final dollar that we spend is probably going to be less cost-effective than whatever we can do in biosecurity. So we should be doing both AI and biosecurity.
1: Yeah. So the way I think about the declining returns thing is let's imagine that I have my factory farming animal hat on and I'm thinking, do I want to go and recommend that Open Phil spend more time trying to do a worldview diversification research and try to figure out how it should shift around the fractions that it's giving to, to each of these different problem areas. And I guess with this hat on, I think I've got the best arguments. I'm right. And so like on average, if they think about it more, they're going to end up agreeing with me. But I might think, well, in the very best case where they just went all in on this worldview, Maybe say I'm 25% of the budget now. I could go up to 100%, but in fact, that's not even really that beneficial to me. Maybe because I, I already can't like find a way to spend the money that I have now, or I'm already running out of opportunities. And so, even quadrupling your budget might only accomplish you know 100% more. And so you'd be like, now nah, let's just stop thinking about it. Like I'm I'm happy with the fraction that I've got because that's like actually plenty to do most of what I want to do, and I don't really want to risk the possibility of losing some of my share in order to have an expected increase.
0: Yeah, I, I think that makes sense from the perspective of a worldview. I feel like that seems right, but it seems like a little bit weird because it's basically the worldview being like afraid that, you know, further, further thoughtful reflection, which we sort of assume will lead to increasingly better conclusions, is like going to lose it money. So from, from the perspective of an individual worldview that's kind of like, quote, selfish within its worldview, then I agree that declining returns means that that worldview is probably more afraid to lose money than it is happy to gain money. But that's like a different notion of declining returns than people usually mean when they say declining returns leads to diversification, because people are usually talking about declining returns from the perspective of the decider, where you're sort of like, you know, you can put $100 million into bed nets, but then the marginal bed net is going into this area that has like very low malaria incidence. So at that point, rather than buying that next bed net, you'd be better off funding deworming, or you'd be better off doing cash transfers. That's kind of like what I think of as like, quote, normal, like version of diversification due to diminishing marginal returns.
1: Yeah. I guess it could bite across theories if one worldview really thought that it just had nothing that was positive. It had funded everything that that generated good and like, and anything else would actually in fact be counterproductive, but maybe that's just like too extreme and peculiar a a view to take. I
0: think, I think it's very unlikely you land in that place. Um it seems more likely across the two near-termist worldviews because the ratio of what seems at stake is less extreme. So I could imagine the like animal inclusive worldview getting to the to a place where it's spent so much money on animals and like made things so much better that it because it also cares about humans, the next dollar it would spend would actually be aiming to help humans but i really don't see it for the long-termist versus near-termist worldview because of the like because of a the like massive differences in scale posited scale of the like world of moral things posited and because like the long-termist worldview could always just like sit and wait
1: yeah that makes sense I guess I'll just note that um, the philosopher or PhD student Hayden Wilkinson recently wrote this paper called um, Expected Value is Fanatical, But That's a Good Thing, which unfortunately we haven't had a time to, to read closely because it's a little bit technical, but uh, we'll stick up a link for that <laughs> for, for readers if they're curious to see. I guess he, he claims in the introduction to the paper that almost nobody has ever defended fanaticism, which is kind of like in moral philosophy, just going all in on, on one perspective and, and ignoring other considerations. Again, almost no one's defended it, So, but he wants to stake out the territory of defending it and saying, actually, this is more reasonable than than hedging your bets. Maybe we'll be able to talk about that paper at some point in the future once once I've actually read it. <laughs> Has OpenPhil as an organization kind of made any big strategic shifts in the world views and weights that it relative weights that it gives since I guess you had a you had a couple of different blog posts about this back in 2017, I think. People, I guess, might be curious, like, what is the upshot of the things that you've been learning since then for what OpenFill is actually going to fund?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I laid out this worldview diversification question in terms of these three main worldviews and these sort of high level philosophical considerations for how much to give to each of these worldviews, whether like, do you wait by credence or do you give all of it to the worldview that says it has the most at stake? Or do you do fairness agreements to like make trades between worldviews? Since then, I think we've moved into like a bit more of like an atheoretical perspective where there may be like kind of a larger number of buckets of giving. And basically each of those buckets of giving will have like some estimate of cost effectiveness in terms of like, its own kind of like native units so like there may be like many buckets of giving in the near termist human-centric side like you know giving to give well top charities or giving to target malaria or things like that in the zone of ambitious sort of science projects to to eradicate disease or giving to improve policy in developing countries and we would we would try to like Math all of those out in terms of like disability adjusted life years per dollar or like, you know, maybe effective cash transfers per dollar or something. But they would each kind of have different properties in terms of like these kind of intangible properties that were partly driving our desire to do worldview diversification in the first place, such as like subjectively weirder and more speculative and less commonly considered to be a good goal, or like having worse feedback loops, or like having a higher risk of self-delusion, or feeling more like a Pascal's mugging. These are all kind of tags you could put on different tranches, different buckets of giving. And even within one worldview, there might be these like tags might be different for different buckets. So you can imagine like improving vaccine manufacturing capability in a way that would like help us prevent future COVIDs or help us make future COVIDs better and also potentially something much worse. Could be like one sort of bucket of long-termist oriented giving that seems pretty good in terms of seeming like a subjectively good goal to like most humans and having like pretty good feedback loops because you can see what's happening with the vaccines as as you're going and like having a pretty low risk of self-delusion because you're sort of deferring a lot to experts in how it's actually done and so on versus something like, you know, funding Really unproven EAs to attempt to get a sort of machine learning degree to try and do AI safety research seems like it has a higher risk of potentially self-delusion because like there are no kind of like experts in this area to defer to and might has worse feedback loops potentially and there are things you could imagine that have even worse feedback loops like maybe creating bunkers for people to hide out in if there's like a and a bio disaster or a nuclear disaster and so. Basically, like, I think the, the, the rough thought here is that there are some, some things in each of the three tranches, each of the three big worldviews that perform really well on these subjective intangible things that make it so that they're kind of an easy sell to ourselves. And then there are others that sort of perform worse on these intangibles. And just empirically speaking, we feel more comfortable doing the things that perform worse on intangibles when they pencil out to be like, you know, better on their own terms like within their kind of worldview bucket. So we're kind of like moving into something where we sort of talk trench by trench, bucket by bucket. And there might be like 10 or 20 of these buckets, as opposed to these three big worldviews. And we like try to do, the, do our best to do the math on them in terms of the unit of value purchase per dollar. And then also think about these other intangibles and like argue really hard to come to like a decision about each bucket
1: let's move on to kind of another cluster of uh, research that you did while generally thinking about how should OpenPhil allocate its money between different issues. Earlier, we were talking about the long-termist worldview versus other worldviews. And I guess one key part of figuring out how much to weight the long-termist worldview is to think, well, how big could the future be? How much how much benefit could you create in the, in the long term? I suppose on a, on a more simple long-termist view, you could think, well, the size of the future might be that humans continue to live on Earth as they have for another billion years until the sun ultimately expands and, and kills everyone. But I suppose the future potentially might be a whole lot bigger than that, which is one reason that potentially you want to give the long-termist worldview a lot of weight. Uh, Do you want to go into that?
0: Yeah. So the basic astronomical waste argument that is the kind of seminal paper of this long-termist worldview essentially says that there's a very good chance that we could colonize space and create a society that's not only very large relative to what could be sustained on earth, but also very robust and having a very low risk of extinction once you like cross that barrier. And so we actually think that that is like a pretty important part of the case for long-termism. So like if we were imagining long-termism just living in the world where like Humanity will continue on Earth and like things will happen and it'll be kind of like it is now, but it it might last for a long time. So there may be many future generations. We're not convinced that that's enough to get you to reducing existential risk as your primary priority, because in a world where there isn't a period where we have we're kind of much more technologically mature and much more able to defend against existential risks. The like sort of impact of reducing existential risk today is much more washed out and doesn't necessarily echo through all of the future generations, even if there are many of them on Earth. So I was like looking into that general question of like, will we have a large and robust low X risk future in space.
1: And what are the kind of the component questions of that?
0: Yeah, so there are basically two parts to this project. The first part was a like brief literature review/slash interviews about the kind of technical feasibility of space colonization plus much reduced existential risk worlds. And I was looking into all sorts of things like, you know, well, how, how many stars are there? And how fast could our spaceships be? And how much mass could they carry? And I was trying to basically find the kind of most defensible or most conservative assumptions that would still lead to this kind of low X-risk space colonization world in terms of like, you know, could we have biological humans colonize a small number of planets? And could that be like a sort of stable, low existential risk world? I ended up landing on like, that is actually fairly dicey to defend. And like the most conservative assumptions that like robustly lead to this big safe world in space do go through humans being uploaded into computers and those computers being taken to space, as opposed to the like biological bodies being taken to space and, you know, trying to, trying to alter planets by terraforming to make them habitable for biological humans. So I thought that was kind of like an interesting upshot.
1: Yeah, what's what's the reason for that? Why is it that, you know, humans go and go to other planets and, and live there thing I guess either isn't possible in the first place or wouldn't be sustainable for very long time periods?
0: I don't know that I like strongly think it isn't possible. It just seems like there are a lot of questions that go away if you make the one assumption about uploaded humans. And so like the people I talked to were kind of like, you know, that maybe, maybe we could swing that. Maybe we could have biological humans in big spaceships traveling to these other planets. But there are a lot more questions about, you know, sustaining life on the spaceship and sustaining, you know, finding planets that are suitable for terraforming than there are about you know, preserving these like computers and like finding planets that are suitable for building computers on. And, you know, a big one is just that these spaceships need to be huge to support these human colonies and like, you know, feed them and everything. And these huge spaceships, you know, first of all, like require a lot more materials to build. You might not be able to build as many of them. They might be like much more fragile in terms of you have this huge surface area, you have to like protect from stuff like space debris and things, especially if you're going very fast. And you might, with these smaller spaceships, be able to send redundantly many, many of them so that if some of them get destroyed, it's okay with a fraction of the material you would have spent on the big spaceship. stuff like that.
1: Yeah, my—I mean, this isn't something I'm an expert in, but I love to speculate about it. I guess my—I
0: my- <laughs> actually do not. I do not consider <laughs> myself an expert either. I wrote down things that people said. I read some papers.
1: Yeah, I guess in that spirit, my impression is that I haven't heard a good reason to think that, it, like, in the fullness of time, it wouldn't be possible for humans to settle Mars and like make Mars habitable and potentially some other places in, within the solar system, places where actual like flesh and blood humans could live and continue to procreate and, and be self-sustaining. But yeah, once you're talking about going to other stars and finding planets there, it gets a lot, a lot more dicey where that's possible. I guess just because humans are really not designed for space travel. That is not what we evolved to be capable of doing. We need lots of space and lots of resources. And I guess so if you can get, it all, you can get all of those materials into some big spaceship, now you've got to go a very long way. And the amount of energy required to move something that would be such a big ship that would be large enough to to have a self-sustaining group of humans for like, I guess, thousands of years. That's a lot of material. And then you've got this trade-off between you try to go really fast that's like very uh, energy requiring and you also have this issue that you run into dust on the way and dust would eventually like pelt and potentially break down the ship it's actually a very big issue that because you want to go as close <laughs> to li- you want to go as close to light speed as possible that's like hard enough in the first place and that obviously like makes it a bit easier because you won't be there for as long and you don't have to keep the ship like turning over so many generations of humans on the on the trip and i guess also time slows down when you go especially fast but then the, the ship just gets pelted and disintegrates because of dust, which is one reason that people thought, well, if you want to go to other stars, what you want to do is send it a thousand tiny little ships because they have a chance of like just by good fortune, not hitting dust in the intervening space, even though they're going incredibly fast and dust would blow them up. So you not only have to have enough material that you have, like, a huge ship where you can have a, like, self-sustaining population of, I guess, a thousand people, because otherwise they'll become inbred and non-functional. You also (laughs) then have to have all the resources to terraform a planet once you get there and make it viable for humans. And it could be, like, completely different kinds of planets. So it seems hard.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think the thing that cinches it for me in terms of, like, I really don't want the long-termist case resting on the biological colonization is that I'm really not sure the economics of it would work out. It seems like colonization with biological humans would require like much more motivation on the part of the like home planet to make it happen than the smaller space probe colonization or colonization with computers that could be like done with, you know, one motivated company potentially like once we have the technology. So I think that that's also part of it for me where I'm kind of like not only does it seem technologically diceier it also seems like, p- partly because of that, it also seems like I'm not sure that I can like really tell someone like, hey, this is probably going to happen if this is the only way it can happen.
1: So your point there is that settling other star systems is not like you know, Europeans going to the Americas. They're not, no one's coming back any silver or gold anytime soon well, on a re- an economically plausible timescale. So you have to want to do it just for its own sake. And then who's going to fund this if it's like costing several years of global GDP to do it?
0: Yeah. I mean, we might mine asteroids and stuff that, but like, you know, in, ter- in terms of actually like diversifying off of earth and like getting a big dose of the sort of reduced, more robust future, like permanently reduced X risk part of the story, then I think you'd have to be much more motivated as a civilization if it had to be biological versus if it had to be, or if it could be computers.
1: Yeah. Okay. Tell us about the computer future. Can we send self-replicating computers to other star systems? Is that, is that likely?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, there's not a lot of literature on this and not a lot of people who've thought about it. Um, So, (laughs) you know, I, I love this paper out of FHI called eternity in six hours, which has a, has a great sort of like, it's just, it's just very fun sci-fi almost. So, you know, I, I certainly think that like, people in the sort of effective altruist community who have thought about this, you know, seem quite bullish about it, seem quite bullish about like small ships that are traveling meaningful fractions of the speed of light and like, you know, have these onboard computers and these computers are able to like land on planets and like do what they need to do to like build more computers on that planet and like build more ships and send them out. And- it's not like I like found any particular devastating counterargument to that or anything. I think I am kind of like more uncertain than the people who are who are most into this like the authors of the Eternity in 6 Hours paper. But it, it kind of seems to me like there's like a broad range of technological sophistication levels that once you assume sort of the ability to upload humans into computers which feels like the the big kind of like interesting uncertainty after that point, it feels like you don't need massively more sophisticated technology than we have now to get the sort of lower end of the ability to colonize other planets, other stars to get the kind of like, you know, you're, you're kind of like, there's like the shock wave expanding over the entire observable universe. You have to assume these more intense technological capabilities, which seem like possible, but you know, I wouldn't blame you if you were more kind of like skeptical of that. But I think the kind of like lower end doesn't involve a ton of innovation. And that was something that I learned from this project.
1: That's interesting. You're saying that we're like within firing distance of potentially being able to send computers to other stars if we were really willing to do what it took. Yeah. But then would they be able to do what it takes? And I guess I've heard that rather than go down to planets, which is kind of hard, they would probably want to go to asteroids and then grab resources from the asteroids and turn those into, into copies of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the thing that I'm like most unsure on about this. It feels to me like the kind of technological problem that if humanity had thousands of years, it could, it could figure out but it seems like it's a slight, it's a slight heavy lift given the fact that it's like a bit hard to send that much it's hard to send like a full industrial like base to another star system because it's so much material and so much dust in the way so it's like can you can you squeeze through just enough that it can get off the ground at the other end
0: i mean i i think that one kind of update i made from this is that and this was a long time ago and there People since have looked into space colonization at OpenFill, so I haven't like dug into their work on it. But my impression is that most of the technological uncertainty is on the software side of things versus the like spacecraft side of things or the like energy side of things. For, for what I'm calling the kind of like conservative astronomical waste story where the spacecraft don't actually need to be like that fast or that tiny. I think that the big question is like, can we create these computers or on like kind of like moderate amounts of computing hardware that could fit on like, I don't know, like a golf ball sized craft or like, you know, maybe a soccer ball sized craft. Can you basically embed artificial intelligence on there and robotics that's flexible enough to to be able to like make do with what it happens to find on like another surface? And that that feels like, more of the uncertainty to me than can we make some kind of spacecraft work to colonize some stars, not like the big colonize the universe thing, but still enough to like dramatically reduce existential risk because you're spread out more.
1: Okay, let's let's wrap up on this uh, empirical bit. I guess the the, the bottom line is having looked into this, you thought if you're willing to buy that sending artificial intelligence or like uploaded humans in some form to other star systems to do their thing would be valuable. The possibility that we can't get to other star systems doesn't reduce the value of the far future, or the long term future that much, because it's 50 50 likely that we can do it. And so that only get that that only halves the value or something. And so that's, it's not going to be the kind of big reduction for like deflation factor or a big reduction factor that you would need to say, oh no, actually like the future is not that, not that big in expectation. Yeah. But there's like other arguments that potentially could do more heavy lifting. And you mentioned them earlier, the, the doomsday argument and the simulation argument. Maybe, yeah, just, just lay out the, the doomsday argument. And I suppose how persuasive do you find that line of reasoning or how, how much, how much can it do to, to shrink the expected size of future, future life?
0: Yeah, so the doomsday argument is basically, so you find yourself on apparently like the cusp of the ability to colonize space, according to the previous research. You should be very surprised if there seems to be like a very long future ahead of you as a civilization and you find yourself at the very earliest bit. So in other words, like an analogy is like, let's say God flips a coin at the beginning of the universe and he either makes 10 boxes labeled one through 10 each of which has a human in it or he makes 10 billion boxes labeled 1 through 10 billion each of which has a human in it after he does this you wake up in a box and you walk outside to see your box is labeled 3 so the intuition here that it's trying to elicit is that you should expect that oh probably we landed on the 10 boxes side instead of the 10 billion boxes side because like if it were the 10 billion boxes like i should have seen you know 7 billion as my number rather than 3 So the the argument is like, you know, that's what you should believe in the case of the boxes and whether our world has like a big, bright future or will be wiped out quite early in its history is like God flipping that coin and creating either 10 boxes or 10 billion boxes. So finding yourself early in history should make you think there's actually a lot more existential risk that's a lot more intractable than you thought. And humanity isn't going to have a long future and there's not much you can do about it.
1: Yeah. So... I guess, depending on how far back you think humans go, which I guess is a bit of a messy question because it was just a continuous gradual evolution into, into being the humans that we are now. But maybe, maybe there's like been 100 billion humans ever at any point. And so we think we're like at about 100 billion. And the question is like, if there's going to be a trillion humans, then it's like not surprising that we would find ourselves, that, not that surprising anyway, that we'd find ourselves in the first 100 billion. But if there's going to be a thousand trillion, then it's starting to look, it's, like, it's a bit odd. It's a bit like drawing the, drawing the box three. And so maybe that's a reason to think that there, there won't be that many people in the future. Because if, because if there's going to be so many, then like, what a coincidence that we should find ourselves at this incredibly early stage. Is this sound reasoning? I don't know what a philosopher's make of this. Cause it feels like it's proving too much yeah. just by like, I mean, you haven't looked at anything almost <laughs> and yet you're like <laughs> managing to prove that we'll, that we'll manage to destroy ourselves on the basis of pure theory.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely like suspicious of things that have strong conclusions about what kind of world we're living in from pure philosophy. But I actually think both sides of this debate end up having something like that. So this doomsday argument relies on what's called the self-sampling assumption. These are extremely confusingly named. Um, (laughs) But basically, the doomsday argument gets its weight from the assumption that before you look at your box, you should have been 50-50 on whether God flipped the small world coin or the big world coin. And because before you looked, you were 50-50, then you make a massive update towards the small world because you're sort of an early number. And that intuition is coming from like, well, God flipped a coin, so it's 50-50. The other perspective you could take on this is before you look at your number, there should be a massive update already in favor of being in the big world just because you exist. And there's more people existing having experiences in the world with 10 billion boxes than in the world with 10 boxes. So then when you look, you are back to 50-50. That's like roughly the two assumptions that self-sampling is the first one and self-indication is the second one, but I never remember that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the, basically the idea is before you get out of your box, if it's the second world, there's, sorry, was it 10 billion people?
0: 10 billion boxes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So there's that many boxes. So you're like, well, there's way more people in this world. So I'm far more likely to be there because, and I guess it's- yeah. Doing something like not taking for granted that you would exist. It's like, it's it's imagining like 10, 10 million versus like 10 or 9 million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety empty, <laughs> where like there is no person. So that seems, I guess that fits my intuitions that I would be like, I would think I would be more likely to be in the world where there's more people. What a yeah, yeah what what do you make of that? So
0: I think that is pretty reasonable, but it also leads to this kind of presumptuous. The the thing you were saying about like you come up with this really confident theory about what kind of world you're living in based on pure philosophy applies to this approach, but in the other direction. So it's less weird because you know about God flipping the coin and you kind of want to end up at 50-50 after looking at your box in this thought experiment. But the thing where you like massively update in favor of being in the 10 billion boxes world over the 10 boxes world, when you take it to the real world can be applied to basically be like, you don't need to look at any physics to know that our world is like spatially infinite. Like you just know that because you exist. Since like there was some chance that the world is spatially infinite and there's like infinity update in favor of being in the world with infinite people. And so you're just like, I don't care what the physicists say. And I basically don't care how much evidence they find that the universe is finite.
1: I see. So you can either be presumptuous in the first case, or you accept this other presumption that's like, I can, I can deduce from pure theory that the universe must be enormous, indeed, infinitely large, because that's a world with so many more people in it. And so I'm like far more likely to be in that one. And so you've got to bite one of these bullets or like accept one of these un- unpleasant conclusions.
0: You could even take it further because like it feels it, it, this thing about being a person is kind of underdefined, right? So you could be like, actually, I know with extreme confidence that there's infinite Rob Wibblins experiencing this exact thing, because that was physically possible, And I have like a, you know, infinite, infinity to one update that like the world is just like tiled with Rob Wiblin's having Skype conversations with Ajaya (laughs) right now, because like, you know, I would be most likely to be experiencing what I'm experiencing in that world.
1: I suppose does that end up being just the same as saying that the universe is infinite? I suppose it has to be infinite and like not obviously repeating just some identical pattern that doesn't include me in it.
0: Well, but there's, there's, there's infinite universes with different densities of Rob, right? Some of them have more Rob, they happen to have more Rob, some of them, you know, like the physics is arranged such that like Rob is a really common pattern.
1: So I look out at the night sky and I see all of these stars, but really I should be very overwhelmingly confident that that's an illusion. And in fact, the universe, you know, all of that space is actually full of me having conversations with you. Yeah. I see. That does seem kind of intuitive. Uh, I was going <laughs> to say that the, the presumptuous philosopher who thinks that the universe must be infinite i guess we get some like semi-confirmation of that by looking at the universe it seems like it could be infinite or we at least we don't have like strong reason to think that it is finite based on the evidence that we have so maybe they might get a pass on that but yeah the idea that it's absolutely tiled very densely with us having this conversation (laughs) is a more (laughs) unappealing conclusion so (laughs) so where do you where do you fall down on this
0: so I am more on the side of the presumption to big. So I'm more on the side where you, when you wake up, you think you're in the 10 billion boxes world, and then you update back to 50-50 or whatever. But I do think that's because I kind of want to end up with a normal conclusion. And I don't love the thing that I just said about this like solipsist conclusion, basically. That, that leads into the second weird argument about how the future might be small, or the, why the ratio between the future and the present might be smallish, yeah. which is a simulation argument.
1: Right. So I guess we have a bunch of things that all fit together a bit here. So we've got this idea that, oh, we could influence a whole lot of people, but then we like it doesn't feel right. It feels like this, is, this has to be overconfident somehow. And then the doomsday argument is one reason to think that, well, the the, the future can't be big. And then it's like, but how would that be? And then I guess the simulation argument potentially offers an explanation for how that actually would fit with our observations.
0: Yeah. So the doomsday argument assumes that there's like sort of really high unavoidable X risk or something. and, And that's why the future is small. But the simulation argument takes it in another direction. The simulation argument says, grant that there's a big future with, you know, all these computations running and like a large number of flourishing humans in space running on computers. In that world, then some small fraction of their resources might be spent simulating worlds like ours, namely like worlds where humans are on one planet and they seem to be maybe on the cusp of colonizing space in this way in the next several decades then in that case if such simulations are like even a pretty small fraction of the resources of this presumed giant future like one in a million of the resources or one in you know 100,000 then almost all of the people having experiences like ours are in simulations rather than in quote the real world and the ratio of the value of like what we think of as the future and what we think of as the present is basically bounded by like one over the fraction of the resources in the future spent on simulations. So if they spent 0.1% of their resources on simulations, then like the ratio of the value of the future to the value of the present is at most a thousand.
1: Okay. So you could have different arguments in favor of the um, simulation argument. So one would just be, say you would think it's very intuitively plausible that we could go out and create an enormous, uh, like that we are going to go out and settle space and capture all this energy and have very, lots of very fast computers. And if we did that, it would be very plausible that we would simulate a time just like this very frequently so that most of the people in a situation like the one in which we find ourselves are in simulations rather than kind of the original, I guess people call it the, the basement universe, the one that's the one that's originally not, not, not simulated. Another angle would be to say, it's so suspicious that we look up at the sky and there's so many stars, so much space and matter that is being put to no use and that it seems like we could just go and use it. That would have the extreme implication that... We're at this very special time and we have this potential to have enormous impact over lots of other beings. That can't be right. So I want this debunking, I want a debunking explanation that makes the world seem more sensible. And that explanation is going to be that, well, for whatever reason, like even if I didn't think it was super plausible that future people would want to run a simulation of something as boring as this podcast, I'm going to, I'm going to think that anyway, (laughs) or I I independently have a reason to think that, that they, that they are.
0: That seems right. I think like people have gotten there through both forks. I think I'm a little bit more on the side of like seeking a debunking explanation for what seems like this enormous amount of value lying on the table. And I also have some for myself of like, oh, what the Fermi paradox, like why aren't there aliens would also be something that either the doomsday argument or the simulation argument could debunk.
1: I see. Yeah, that that makes sense. Okay. So you're saying if it's so surprising that the universe seems barren of other life, even though we're here, the doomsday argument would say, well, we're not going to be here for long. So, and neither neither, (laughs) was anyone else. And the simulation argument would say, oh, it's because we're in the Truman Show and it's not a real sky. It's just a, it's a a make-believe sky that they've put up there to entertain us. Okay. I guess I think some people get off the boat with this a little bit because people start explaining why it is that future super civilizations, you know, potentially harvesting the energy from suns would want to run a simulation of what we're doing. And that starts to sound pretty kooky. Did you spend very much time thinking about the different rationales that people provide for why we would be here?
0: I mean, so it kind of comes back to the to fanaticism a little bit and like how probabilities are weird and like Pascal's muggings are weird. Even if you think it's really unlikely, are you going to think it's like a one in 10 to the 40 chance if you previously thought there were 10 to the 40 persons in the big long term future? Because if you're like, if you're not willing to go there, if you're if you're going to say it's a one in 10 million chance, you've brought the ratio down of the future to the present from 10 to the 40 to 10 million, right? So I think it's hard. I, I kind of share your skepticism of like, why would people be simulating us? And I kind of, in this project, went down a long rabbit hole about why that might be. But I think the ultimate thing is that we came up with this argument, you know, like we could imagine ourselves simulating our past for whatever reason. We could imagine... One in a billion of us being like crazy, like historical replicationists or whatever, like civil war reenactments. And like, it just takes like a pretty small fraction. And it's it's quite hard to say that my probability on non-trivial amounts of simulation is like anywhere in the range of one over the size of the future. And that's what it takes for the argument not to bite.
1: I see. Okay. So some people might just get off the boat and say, I just don't want to engage in this sort of reasoning at all. This is, this is too much for me. And I and so I'm not going like, to use this style of reasoning. But I guess we're not, we're not those people. So we have to answer the questions like how much, how much does this deflate the expected size of the future? We have to do something about like, well, how likely is this kind of reasoning to be right? Is there some other very like similar-ish argument that we haven't yet thought of that would also demonstrate that we're in a simulation for some reason or a reason that there would be lots of people in the situation that we're in that we haven't yet thought of or maybe there's a reason why they wouldn't do it and so there's there won't be so many but then it seems like your entire worldview hinges on this like wild speculation about this universe that you can't see and beings that you don't know and like how many of you would they want (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, also like it's um, it also I mean, it dampens the ratio of what you believe to be the long term future to what you believe to be the present by a lot. But it also furthermore implies that most of the like impacts of all your actions, long termist and near termist are like to do with how you change the like resource intensity of the simulation you're in and like what they would have used the resources for otherwise and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like the astronomical waste argument in the sense that it reframes all of your random actions as like only mattering in that they like impact the probability of getting to the long-term future, but it just replaces probability of getting to the long-term future with whatever effects you have on the outside universe. Mm.
1: Okay. So how does this actually affect your estimates of what we ought to do? Is there any way of summarizing that? Or is this an area where you just kind of threw up your hands a bit? I guess my kind of take on this has been, it should affect it somewhat, but I don't really understand exactly how. And it doesn't seem like it's such a strong argument that I'm going to stop doing what I was going to do before I encountered this argument.
0: (laughs) I'm basically in in a very similar place. I think I was at my like peak fanaticism of peak astronomical waste fanaticism before doing this project. And then after doing this project, I was like, well, you know, like I've kind of discovered my limits in terms of like where I get off the train to crazy town. And I'm just kind of like, I am going to be like living at the stop where I'm like, I take astronomical waste very seriously, take the idea of we're in like a critical period of existential risk very seriously. I'm probably going to spend most of my energies working on that, but just kind of like realize that there's a lot more out there in terms of like, if you really have the goal to like take philosophy as as far as it goes, there's like more stops past me and I don't know where they lead. And um, infinite ethics is another good one here, like in terms of like finding a non-broken version of total utilitarianism that works in an infinitely sized world and like avoids these paradoxes. I don't know if that's possible. So I, I think I was just kind of like, I was like kind of humbled by it. And I was just like, took us, st- I basically gave up on this project because I was like, I don't want to get this to a publishable state and like put in all the work it would take to like go down the rabbit hole enough to like come to like particular conclusions on its basis. But I do kind of have more empathy for people who had the intuition that the astronomical waste argument is really weird, which, which I sort of, also had that intuition. And then I was sort of like, I'm being silly. Like, it's a really strong argument. And like, you know, I'm just being scope insensitive or something. But actually, one kind of like lesson here is just like assuming a big world allows for a lot of crazy things to happen and allows for a lot of sort of trippy questions to be raised and stuff. And so it it is, in fact, a very weird and bizarre argument that opens the door to a lot of other weird and bizarre arguments.
1: Yeah, I think... I suppose I don't think of these arguments as crazy. I don't want to be like, this is crazy. I feel like I maybe stopped thinking about it, not because it's too weird for me, because I'm into pretty weird stuff, but more just I couldn't really see how me analyzing this was going to, like how this was going to shift my behavior or like how I was getting traction on this from a research point of view or from a practical point of view. I guess yeah, One one difference I feel is, the kind of astronomical waste argument, or the idea that oh, the long term matters a lot because it could be very big, lots of people are having really good lives. I feel like that cashes out in something that I can understand about how it might affect what I want to do, whereas the simulation argument, and I guess to some degree the the anthropics related uncertainties around the doomsday argument they just feel so slippery and i'm just like i don't know where this leads and i'm not sure where i would even begin walking and so it's very tempting i guess for me and i suppose many other people have probably done this as well and kind of these arguments and just be like i kind of i kind of give up and i'm going to stop where the tractability ended for me but i guess I, w- I would love it if someone else much smarter than me could figure out what this actually does imply for me in my life and then maybe i would take that seriously
0: i would definitely be interested in funding people who want to think about this i think it is like really deeply neglected. It might be like the most neglected global prioritization question relative to its importance. There's at least like two people thinking about AI timelines, but like zero <laughs> people basically, um, except for like Paul in his spare time, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, Paul, I, Paul I think Cristiano, it could have is. implications. <laughs> yeah, Paul Cristiano. Uh, you know, I I think it could end up having implications for how we think about AI and like how worried we are about misaligned AI and stuff. I don't know exactly. But like there's something like if you if you imagine we are being simulated for some purpose by an outside universe, then do we want to align artificial intelligence with our goals? Or like, are we mostly trying to like think about why we were simulated and like use AI to like help us figure out how to give the outside world whatever it is they wanted? Or like, should we should we be cooperative with the outside world? And if we should be cooperative with the outside world, then does that meaningfully change how upset we are about? Misaligned AI, like it might be misaligned with us, but we'd m- want to think about what it means for it to be un- aligned with like where all of the value actually does lie. Most of the value lies, which is the outside basement universe or whatever. I-, I think it could have implications. Like I'm, I'm not the person to think about them, but I would, I would be very excited for other people to think about them.
1: Yeah, I guess another line of argument that people have made is, uh, well, let, let's assume that we are in a simulation for the sake of a hypothetical that means that there must be some reason why they've decided to run the simulation. And it means so that this world must be kind of interesting in some way. And people write really funny tweets. And I guess like Wikipedia is good and Netflix produces some good shows, but that probably <laughs> seems like it's not quite enough for them. So, so what, like yeah. what, what would be the reason? And then we were like, well, maybe we should go look around like what actually would be of interest. And then I suppose people have said, well, maybe we're at the cusp of some really important moment in history, something that really would be of interest to future generations. And they'd be like, well, could it, be, it could be a massive war or it could be development of new technology that's super revolutionary, of which I guess like AI and some biotech stuff might be might be on the list. It seems like you'd be more likely to simulate something that was really historically, epically important. And so that's a reason to expect, if we are in a simulation, for it to be more interesting in some way. And then, and then you can be like, well, what does that imply? And I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So... I guess we, we both find this interesting and slightly exasperating. I would be very happy for someone else to write papers that that then would 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 get us off the hook yes. for thinking about it anymore.
0: Yes, I'm very excited about people. I mean, I think it's rare to find someone who has both the capacity and the like stamina or patience for this kind of thinking. And so, like, I think it's like quite neglected and could be really high impact if you find yourself excited about it.
1: Yeah. All right, right, well, we'll stick up links to the simulation argument paper and I guess a bunch of blog posts that flesh out possible, possible consequences of possible things that we might infer from it uh, for people who want to go and explore that. Let's talk now about another whole area of research that you've been working on over the last two years, which has been this report called Forecasting Transformative AI with Biological Anchors. What was the goal of that project and why did it matter?
0: Yeah. So this project came about because potential risks from advanced AI is a major open fill focus area. And one of the important considerations feeding into like how much we should be allocating to risks from AI versus, you know, other long-termist goals and also potentially how much we should be allocating to long-termism as a whole versus near-termism is sort of how urgent the problem of AI risk is and sort of how how soon is it on the horizon and and like how much can we anticipate now and do things that we can expect will affect it without being washed out by like a whole bunch of stuff that happens in between. So like how soon really powerful AI systems are going to be developed is like an important strategic question within the long-termist worldview and sort of indirectly like an important question about how urgent the long-termist worldview as a whole is and therefore kind of how much weight it should get versus the near-termist worldview.
1: Okay. So the so the goal is kind of to try to figure out what's the likelihood of us having transformative AI by different dates, I guess, to figure out how urgent it is to try to make sure that that goes well. Because if it's not going to come for another hundred years, then we can potentially punt that to, to another generation or another philanthropic organization to figure out in the future. Yeah. And what was what was the approach that you took? And I guess, how did it evolve over time?
0: Yeah. So some quick background on this project on OpenPhil's side. So in 2016, Holden wrote a blog post saying that Based on kind of discussions with technical advisors who are kind of AI experts who, who are also kind of, you know, within the EA community and, and used to thinking about things from an EA perspective, based on discussions with those technical advisors, Holden felt that it was reasonable to expect a 10% probability of transformative AI within 20 years. So at the time that was 2016, so that would have been 2036. And, and that was a kind of important plank in the case for making potential risks from advanced AI not only a focus area, but also like a focus area which got a a particular amount of attention from like senior generalist staff. So there are kind of like a number of people thinking about aspects of AI at OpenFill. So since then, that that was roughly around when we opened up a focus area and and decided to to make it a a particular focus of senior staff. We've been in that area for a few years now. And then in 2018, early 2019, we were kind of in the middle of this question of like, you know, we're hoping to expand to peak giving consistent with Carrie and Dustin's goals to, to give away their fortune within their lifetime. And we want to know which broad worldviews and also which focus areas within the worldviews would be seeing most of that expansion. And so then the the question became kind of more live again and more something we wanted to really nail down as opposed to kind of relying a bit more on deference and the kind of like earlier conversations Holden had and so digging into AI timelines felt like basically the, the most urgent question on a list of empirical questions that could impact where budget went. When and how much? Because, um, yeah. And potentially also like how we should broadly strategize about what we do with the money within the AI focus area, because it kind of matters what tactics we, we take, what tactics pay off over what timescales matters for what we would prioritize within that area.
1: All right. If I was a better person, I would. Uh, we would eat our greens before we had our dessert and we would walk methodically through all of the all of the methodologies you've used <laughs> and the various pros and cons before we got to any conclusions. But I'm not a, I'm not a patient person, so, um, so, so we don't take forever to get there. Um, what were your bottom line conclusions about timelines in brief? Did you end up thinking transformative AI may come sooner or later or maybe even that it's just like maybe, maybe not even possible?
0: Yeah. So I think the methodology I used is a little bit more robust for medians rather than either tail. So my median, I mean, I think depending on how I'm feeling in a particular day kind of ranges anywhere between 2050 and 2060 in terms of like, you know, I have this model and like there are some parameters I'm particularly angsty about. So that's like between 30 to 40 years from now. And, you know, I think that's like a quite extreme and, and stressful and scary conclusion because I'm forecasting a date by which the world has been transformed. So that I'm imagining a lot is happening between now and then a lot of wild stuff in 10 years, a lot of wild stuff in 20 years. If the, if the median date is 35 years for fully transformative AI.
1: Hmm. And I guess it could also come sooner or could also come later. So there's uh, there's uncertainty, which I guess also might might make you nervous. Yeah. Is that sooner or later than than what you thought before you set out on this project?
0: So the, the probability by 2036, where Holden originally said at least 10%, I'm kind of like bouncing between 12% and 15%. So it's, it's definitely consistent with the at least 10% claim. With that said, The at least 10% claim was trying to like shade conservative. And I think the best guesses of a number of people at OpenPhil were higher than the 12 to 15% that I'm, that I landed on. And like my own best guess was more like, oh, maybe 20, maybe 25%. And so I think for me, it was sort of numerically an update toward longer timelines but it kind of also made it seem more real to me and made it seem like there was going to be a lot of stuff in between now and transformative AI. So like emotionally, I'm maybe like a little bit more freaked out.
1: Interesting. Okay. So your timeline's moved out. So you thought maybe it'll take a bit longer, but then it felt more concrete and less speculative and like a real thing that could really happen. And so you're like, oh, oh, wow, this, um, this actually really matters.
0: And it, it more feels like there's, there's quite high probabilities of some amount of powerful AI that could have like unpredictable consequences, if not fully transformative or human level AI. So there's something where like, I think I was kind of previously thinking of AI as kind of like biosecurity, which is like, we're doing preparations now for like a sudden event that might or might not happen that could change the world in like this very discreet way. And that was like one flavor of scary. But like now I'm kind of thinking of AI much more viscerally as like this kind of onrushing tide. AI is getting better and better. You can certainly do some stuff with AI. Maybe it'll take us all the way to transformative AI, but it's kind of more relentless and more kind of like changing what the world looks like on the way there. And so that's a kind of a different flavor of scary.
1: Yeah. So I guess you said that this is in a sense, an aggressive forecast, but from memory, the, the big survey or the forecasting survey that they did of ML experts or AI research scientists a couple of years ago, I mean, it had people all the way from you know, 2025 to 2100, or I guess, and a few outliers beyond 2100. And so this is pretty consistent with that. It's just like, well, sometime in the next 100 years, and maybe like 30 or 40 years sounds, sounds uh, like, the, like about the median estimate. So it's not out of line, I guess, with what some other people have said, although you've thought about it a lot more.
0: It's not wildly out of line with one interpretation of that survey. So that survey asked like several different questions. And like in my mind, the headline result of that survey is that the researchers were like quite inconsistent with themselves in terms of asking when AI can do all of the tasks a human can do leads to sooner timelines reported than asking when AI will be able to do AI research. (laughs) <laughs> or like for, there were there were many particular tasks for which the timelines were substantially longer than the timeline for like all tasks. And so it depends on like what how you think the researchers would like net out if forced to reflect. Like I believe the median for the all tasks thing was like maybe it was 2060 or something, like it was 50 years out or it was like a little bit longer than what I'm saying, but you're right that it's not a lot longer. But then the medians for some of the other ones were more like 80 years. For like particular tasks that, you know, the the researchers sort of survey implied would take longer than like just the all tasks question?
1: Yeah. Although your threshold here is transformative AI, which I guess is like a substantially bigger shift than just AI is able to do the tasks that humans can do. Or uh, or a misunderstanding. Is this yeah, a higher I mean, or it low depends. threshold?
0: Yeah, so there's like a question of like what will happen to the world if we have AI that can do most of the tasks humans can do. And like we believe it'll be wild and it will lead to the world moving like much, much faster than it's currently moving and like future technologies being discovered at a much more rapid pace in part because AIs can be made to like run faster in subjective time than humans and in part because they have kind of other advantages like, you know, they, they can be arranged to have like really perfect memory, like no sleep, all that stuff. And so one disconnect is that I don't think that most of the people who answered that survey are imagining the consequences of AI that can solve most human tasks to be as radical as what we're imagining. So like what what we define as transformative AI is like, you know, in, in Holden's blog post, he defined it as AI that has like at least as profound an impact as the Industrial Revolution. And then in my report, I like have a sort of more quantified operationalization that's roughly... AI that is the primary driver of like growth rates, the growth of the world economy is like 10 times faster than it is in 2020. So in 2020, the world economy is growing at like two to 3% per year. And that roughly is sort of like 25 to 30 years to double the economy. And so if you imagine growing 10 times faster, that's like two to three years to double the economy. And the reason we're sort of choosing that threshold, it's kind of an arbitrary threshold. But the idea is that once we are at that pace, there are probably like further speed ups in the future. And basically history is compressed when like growth is really fast. And so like once the world is doubling every two to three years, human plans and like human timescale actions become like dramatically less relevant to the world. And that's kind of like the threshold we're looking to forecast.
1: So it feels to me as a casual observer that this field is moving really fast. I guess this year we've had GPT three and
0: yeah, people are amazed at what fold. they can do
1: in Alpha AlphaFold. Yeah, did, did it feel a bit like by, by the time you finished this that things had moved on a bit and uh, like yeah, uh, <laughs> two, two years is so I, long it, in the AI world.
0: <laughs> it definitely felt that way, and I, I definitely questioned like whether this sort of general approach of doing these like detailed forecasts and like careful investigations is like sustainable or reasonable. I think I had a bit more of an exaggerated sense of that. So like we were, as we were writing the report, I I had like preliminary conclusions in mind in like early 2020. And I was working on like really getting things right and really nailing things before publishing. And then in the meantime, GPT-3 was published. And I think GPT-3 really caused a major shift in like a lot of academics views of timelines or like gut level views of timelines where like before like a lot of academics were fairly dismissive of GPT-2 but i saw like very little sort of dismissive attitude toward GPT-3 and a lot of people who just like straight up said on twitter like i thought agi was like at least 50 years away but now i think it's 10 years away and so my report a lot of it is kind of framed as addressing a skeptical academic audience and like convincing them that it's reasonable to expect substantial probability of like crazy ai capabilities soon and like now at least at least some chunk of those people because of gpt3 and other developments are just kind of like they kind of feel like it's belaboring the point and they more want to argue with me from the other side. You know, they like now think the timelines are much shorter than I think they are. And I have counter arguments to their views too, but the whole orientation was kind of addressing an audience that like shifted some in between when I was writing it and when I got to publish it.
1: Yeah. I guess it's slightly satisfying in that where you have like some confirmation that maybe you were right <laughs> if they've already yeah, changed but, their know, mind. I wish,
0: I, wish it, I had gotten it out and had a lot of people arguing with me that it could never happen. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, I, I think like it's not so much. I feel like kind of salty about that or something, but it's not a big deal. And I think like I ultimately do think it's not fast enough yet that like at least if you're trying to be trying to be smart about it and trying to trying to be efficient, like I think there's still plenty of room to do analysis like this.
1: Yeah. How did this shift your attitude towards AI safety research? And I guess in the same vein um do you do anything differently in your life outside of work <laughs> because of your expectation <laughs> that AI may advance pretty pretty quickly and you know really change the world while you're still alive?
0: So, in terms of how it affects my sort of vision for AI, I think coming into this I was I was kind of a partisan to the gradual takeoff view of like probably AI is going to be like other technologies in the sense that like there's going to be like less powerful AI first. It's going to proliferate. There's going to be like lots of different things you do with it before you get sort of full-blown human-level AI. And so, you know, that was kind of my bias coming in, but I do think that doing this work made me feel more confident about it and more feel like I have some picture of how the gradual takeoff would go. And part of it is not not so much like the particular research that I did in the report, but just like spending a year immersed in like ML and sort of be realizing, oh yeah, there's stuff that I think will improve in the next five years based on this technology. And so that was one thing. And then like that kind of leads to like a proliferation of, of other expectations. So like one is like, you know, it makes me think there'll probably be early failures of like AI systems all over the place you know, systems that are that are doing, like, pretty important but not that important stuff will fail in ways that are kind of analogous to the ways we worry that, like, even more critical, even more general systems will fail. I think that, you know, we could have an AI safety issue that's, like, far short of a GCR but gets everyone's kind of attention on this problem. And, like, you know, I, th- I think on net that, that will probably be a really good thing and will probably relieve a lot of what OpenPhil is, is feeling now with not having people who share our vision of what the like main problems are to fund, but it could also kind of present challenges that I I think maybe the EA community hasn't thought through as much because we've been so used to this world where there's like, we're like a very small set of people who care about this. I think it might not be possible to sort of, play AI safety as like an inside baseball sort of game like you know we might need to think more about like how how do we message to the public we might need to think more about like maybe it's actually quite inevitable that like this will become a, a top tier political issue that that has a lot of eyes on it like climate change
1: mm, i was going okay to say it so could look a bit more like climate change or covid or something like that okay let's go back to learning about the methodology and inspecting whether it whether it makes sense so so the title is forecasting transformative AI with biological anchors What does it look like to forecast something using biological anchors? What what does that mean?
0: Yeah, so there's kind of a history of trying to forecast when we get artificial general intelligence by basically trying to estimate how powerful the human brain is, if you think of it as a computer, and then trying to guess when we trying to extrapolate from from hardware trends when we get computers that powerful. So this is like, this kind of has a longish tradition in, in the scheme of futurism, you know, Ray Kurzweil and Hans Moravec in the 80s and 90s were thinking along these lines. And I think the like big flaw in the earlier iterations of this thinking is basically that they weren't thinking about the effort it would take either software effort or like sort of machine learning training effort to find the program that you should run on the brain-sized computer once you had the brain-sized computers. So I think it led them to estimate timelines that were too aggressive because of this. So like the the Moravec timeline that he estimated in the 90s was that roughly 2020 would be when we would have AGI, human level AI, because he sort of said, you know, well, this is how powerful that I think the human brain is as a computer. And this is when I think computers of that size will become like widely available. They'll be like, you know, $1,000. So somebody could just buy them. And he was actually right about the second half of that. He was right that like computers roughly as powerful as he estimated the human brain to be would be available around now. But And people pointed this out at the time. He wasn't accounting for like, well, actually, it took evolution many, many lifetimes of animals to find the human brain, the human mind, like what arrangement needs to occur on this like hardware. And so like in 2015, 2016, our technical advisors, particularly Paul Cristiano and Dario Amade, were sort of thinking about how to extend this basic framework of like, Think about what a, how powerful a computer would need to be to match the human brain in raw power. But add on top of that, well, how is the search for that going to work? Like if we were to do something like evolution or if we were to do something like ML training, how much how much money, how much computation would it take to do that? And then when would that be affordable? Which pushes timelines out relative to what Moravec was thinking about, which was just when the like one computer to run the one human brain might be affordable.
1: Okay. So, so at the heart of your model, kind of estimate four different probability distributions for kind of four different components, and then put them together to estimate the likelihood of us being able to run uh, transformative AI at acceptable cost uh, by any given date. Can you maybe walk us through the, the the four key probability distributions that you need to estimate here?
0: Yeah. So one is, let's say we wanted to train a single ML model that would constitute transformative AI, which I just call a transformative model. Let's say we wanted to do that given today's algorithms. So, you know, whatever architectures we can come up with, given what we know today and whatever sort of, you know, gradient descent or whatever ML training techniques that we can come up with today, how much computation would it take to train a transformative model? And so that's one piece of it. And then you get that sort of produces this like wide probability distribution, which I call the 2020 training compute requirements distribution. That's Mm. a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And then basically conceptually, once you have that, that is a snapshot of one year, but you expect that algorithmic progress is going to cause us to get better at doing any given thing over time. So you expect that like, if, you know, if the median computation is like X in 2020, then maybe in 2030, it's gone down 10 times. So now it's like 0.1 times X. So that's the second thing, the algorithmic progress piece is just trying to like translate from 2020 to a future year.
1: Okay, so first off, you've got like, how much compute, or how much computational power would we need today, given what we have now to run a trend or to, to, to train a transformative AI. And then you've also got this other thing of like, over time, that is actually declining, because we're getting better at training ML algorithms that they, they can do more with less compute. And then so you've got an estimate of like, how strong is that effect? Yeah. Okay, and then and then what's the third and fourth?
0: And then the third and fourth are basically together estimating how much computation a lab or some government project or or some project trying to train transformative AI would have available to it. So one piece of that is how hardware prices are declining over time. So you can buy more computation with $1 in the future than you can now. And then another piece of that is how investment is increasing over time. So as people sort of see more potential in AI. And as the world as a whole grows richer, then the like frontier project will be willing to put in more money to attempt to train transformative AI.
1: I see. So these are kind of the the economic ones. So the first one is like, yeah, how quickly does right does do really good computers get cheap? And then the, then you want to divide that I guess by how much are we going to be willing to spend to try to train a transformative model? Is it a $1 trillion dollars, a hundred billion dollars, yeah. How many resources will we will we throw at this? Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the first one, which is how much compute would you need to train a transformative model now? How did you try to, try to estimate that?
0: Yeah, so basically, this is where the biological anchor part comes in. So there are a number of different hypotheses about how good are our algorithms today. So one of them is, actually, we will need to sort of replicate the process of natural selection that created humans. And we can think about how expensive it was for evolution to like lead to humans And then think about, you know, are our algorithms better than that or worse than that, and make some adjustment there and, like, generate that probability distribution. And then on the other end, there's, like, actually our algorithms are within striking distance of human learning. So, like, the learning that a baby does as it grows up into a functional adult. And so we can think about how much computation that constitutes because we have an estimate of how powerful the brain is, and we know how long it takes to to grow up to be a functional adult, and then we can think about making an adjustment from there. And so those are those are two anchors, and then there are kind of more complicated anchors that fill out the kind of middle.
1: Hmm. Okay, so those are both kind of crazy anchors in a sense. <laughs> well, they're like both at two quite extreme levels because I suppose the evolutionary one assumes that even though we're designing this process, we can't do any better than natural selection has done designing the human brain over billions of years or like, I guess like h- at least hundreds of mil- millions of years in effect. It's like so many people being simulating all of their brains for all of that time. Seems like surely we can do better than that by, by quite a decent margin or you'd hope. And on the other end, we're, we're just imagining, wow, well, you could train a train a model just as quickly as you could teach a baby to do things. Well, that doesn't seem quite right because I guess, what well, a baby is born with like some kind of innate knowledge or it tends to develop naturally with a whole From bunch
0: evolution. Of, it has some sort of like, yeah. yeah,
1: it's got all of that kind of pre-learning that it's inheriting. And I guess on top of that, we know that just babies learn stuff so much faster than our current ML models. They're much, much better at generalizing from single cases. Uh, So I guess, but then you want to be, so you want to be like, this is maybe an upper and a lower bound. And then we want to like find something in the middle.
0: Yeah. So the lifetime anchor is kind of like, we basically know that like exactly the lifetime doesn't work. So we could, we could afford that right now. And like you were saying, babies, we, we can observe that babies learn much faster than ML models. So the slightly more sophisticated version of the lifetime anchor is like, maybe there's just a constant factor penalty. So maybe if we observe that like our best models today, they took 10,000 times as many data points to learn something as a baby does, then maybe that's just it. Maybe it's just however long a human takes to learn something times 10,000 or times 1,000, or whatever the thing we observe is, which is between 1,000 and 10,000. But I actually believe that that is not the case. And in fact, the, the factor by which ML is worse than a baby grows as the model gets bigger. So with like our tiny models that are learning like really simple things, the factor is smaller. And then for the bigger models learning more complex things, the factor gets bigger. And so the kind of middle hypotheses are based on this empirical observation that training a bigger model, where bigger models can generally do more complicated, interesting things, training a bigger model takes more data. And there's some sort of scaling relationship between the size of the model and the data it takes. And that's where kind of most of my mass is. So like most of my mass is on sort of hypotheses that try to cash out, okay, how big should the model be? Like somewhere in the zone of a human brain maybe slightly bigger, maybe slightly smaller, and we want to think about where that lands. And then given that, how much data does it take to train?
1: So I've been hearing about these scaling laws a lot recently, but I don't feel like I have a great, great grasp on on what they are. Maybe you could explain for me and the audience what we need to know about scaling laws.
0: Yeah. So the fundamental thing is that if you're trying to solve some task to some level of proficiency, like let's say I want to get to at least grandmaster level in chess, then you need to pick a model that is big enough that it's, it's kind of capable of learning to be a grandmaster level, where, where bigger models are, are, are more capable of learning more complex strategies and stuff. So there's some size of model that, that's big enough to, to learn to be a grandmaster at chess. And then you need to train it for long enough that it realizes that potential. And so a, a model is like, you kind of think of it as like a giant collection of numbers and those numbers just like sort of store knowledge it has about the task at hand so at first these numbers are all randomly initialized so these are called parameters and then training sets the numbers to be reasonable values and then they can be interpreted or they represent for the model its knowledge of how to play chess so bigger models are capable of representing more sophisticated strategies they're capable of like sort of remembering more openings or whatever but they also need to see more experience to fill up all of those numbers so roughly speaking, the amount of experience they need is going to be proportional to like the number of numbers they need to fill up. And like machine learning theory says that that is, you should expect that to be roughly linear. So like if you need to fill a knowledge bank of 10 million numbers, then you need to see like 10 million examples, or maybe 100 million examples. But recent empirical work suggests that it's actually sublinear. So it's more like it scales to the 0.75 or something.
1: Hmm. Okay. So people are talking about this in part because recent discoveries have suggested that if you want to make a model like twice as sophisticated in terms of its like memory or how many strategies it thinks about you only need 1.1.7 or 1.5 yeah I
0: times see. as much data.
1: Okay yeah. so it's not quite as it's not quite as data intensive as we previously thought. Yeah Okay. Going back to the question of how much compute would it take to train a human level model with today's algorithms? Is there any intuitive, like, I guess it's an answer of like a certain number of flops, 10 to the power of something. Is there any intuitive way of uh, (laughs) communicating what probability distribution you gave it?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, my colleague, Joe Carlsmith, recently put out a great detailed report on basically what evidence can we gather from looking at the brain about how powerful the computer you'd need to replicate the tasks of the brain. If you somehow you know, found the right software. And so his estimate is that something in the range of 10 to the 13 floating point operations per second to 10 to the 17 floating point operations per second was probably sufficient based on evidence from looking at the brain with a central estimate of 10 to the 15 flops. So I'm, I'm leaning a lot on that. And he goes through like sort of several types of lines of evidence you could look at. But my question was kind of like, well, I'm thinking about 2020 this estimate of brain computation would have been the same, whether we estimated it in 1960 or like 2050, right? But there's kind of only one period in time where it's like we're exactly dead on like competing with biological counterparts. Before that we'll be worse than the biological counterparts and after that we'll probably be better than the biological counterparts.
1: And by we, you mean the machines we make. Yeah,
0: Yeah. like (laughs) our, our, our design versus evolution's design. So we're not thinking about like how hard it was for us or evolution, but just like once we design a product, how much better or worse is it than the product evolution designed that's analogous? So there, I was just kind of trying to subjectively gauge this by looking at machine learning models we have today that are attempting to do something analogous to what creatures do. The the one that we have the richest amount of data for is vision. And then there's also kind of like motor control and like how sophisticated are their movements? And then there's a whole other line of evidence that is, that is actually easier to think about, which is just, just forget about machine learning and think about other technology and how it compares to other natural counterparts. So like think about cameras and how they compare to eyes or think about leaves and how they compare to solar panels, stuff like that. So looking at that, all that stuff, I kind of netted it out to like, well, it seems like kind of roughly in the current moment, it seems like the artifacts we design are like somewhat worse than the artifacts that evolution designs. And so I estimated that it would be about 10 times larger than Joe's estimate for the human brain. Well,
1: wouldn't that stuff just be all over the place? Because like, you know, you've got satellites that can see people from space and my eye I can't do that. And I guess if you were like, how good is Rob's arm compared to this truck that can pick up an insane amount of weight? I mean, from one point of view, maybe the truck isn't as nimble as my as I am, but uh, from another yeah, point of view yeah. it can pick up much more than I can. So it just like seems gonna like say it's gonna yeah, vary I mean, a lot and, depending on the machine. And measure. on the
0: other side, you know, like we have these cells that are like crazy nano machines yeah, and we have yeah. nothing like that. <laughs> right. Um so, so, like,
1: I think what is it, photovoltaic cells are actually more efficient than leaves, but they don't reproduce themselves from a seed. And so yeah,
0: like, from one point yeah. of view,
1: they're much more impressive.
0: Right. So the basic answer is that you like, so it is definitely really fuzzy. And you'll have people who will make the argument you made that like human technology is way cooler than nature. And you'll have people who make the argument I made that we're not anywhere in the ballpark. The way I try to think about it is like, you want to look in those places where humans and nature have similar cost functions. So it actually mattered to them to get the benefit and the co- it actually mattered to them to avoid the cost. So often in this case, the cost is energy to run the thing because that is something humans care about because it costs money. And it's also something nature cares about because you need the animal to like be better at finding food in order to sustain like a more energy intensive thing. So like long-term transportation and like super heavy lifting is not something that conferred much of a fitness benefit to anything. And so it's kind of unfair to grade nature on that basis. I think it's actually like a little more fair to grade us for not getting nanotech. But, but it's still potentially kind of like we weren't in the game, so to speak. So like there's something where it's like so technology that humans are in the game of making, that nature had a strong incentive to make because there was a strong fitness incentive to be good at it, which I don't think is the case for like long distance travel and trucking and stuff.
1: Okay. So you're saying us, us as engineers, we take a big hit because nature has managed to produce like self-replicating tiny machines, and we haven't done that yet. Uh, we're like It doesn't even seem like we're, we're that close. And so at that, we're quite a bit worse.
0: We are, yeah, we are better at these other things, like, you know, weaponry, right? I think it would confer a, fi- a fitness advantage to to be as good at killing things as human machines are. But I mostly try to focus on the regime where like, because I feel like the machine learning models are like kind of in the regime where they're trying to do the same things and not totally failing at it. I'm mostly looking at other technology that also seems to be in that regime. I so see. like not thinking that much about nanotech.
1: Yeah, I see. Okay, so it's like camera and eyes and photovoltaic cells and leaves and things like that. Yeah. Okay, let's push on to the uh, second component, which is how quickly our algorithms are getting better at learning and running with less compute over time. Yeah, how do you how do you estimate that very, very broadly speaking? And what was the conclusion?
0: Yeah, so broadly speaking, there, there are basically two papers I've seen on this. So really, it's pretty small literature. One is... Katja Grace's paper from 2013 called Algorithmic Progress in Six Domains. And then the other is a recent blog post from OpenAI called AI and Efficiency. And both of those are basically doing like a pretty similar thing for different tasks, which is they're asking like over successive years when there's like some benchmark, how much less computation did it take in future years to beat the previous state of the art? And so from that, they kind of... Found these trend lines, where I believe like the trend line from AI and efficiency was like having every 16 months or maybe 13 months the amount of computation it takes to achieve the performance on ImageNet that was achieved in 2012. So like in 2012 there was this like big breakthrough year where image recognition models got a lot better, and then from there we can ask how much more efficiently can we get that same level of performance. And then Kachi Grace's paper looked at a lot more different tasks, but few of them were machine learning tasks. So she looked at like factoring numbers, um, and there were a bunch of other things. And so, and in that paper, it was kind of between you know twelve months and like two years or something.
1: Is the having time? Years
0: is the having, having time? Yeah. And so I I was just kind of like, okay, let's take that as a starting point. And then I shaded upward a little bit because transformative models, like for all these tasks, you achieve a benchmark and then you like work on making it better. So you have really strong feedback loops. But with transformative AI, there's something that is like currently at an unachievable level of cost that's slowly coming down until we can meet it. And so it seems like it would be having time for that would be slightly longer because you're sort of working on these proxy tasks and what you can actually work on and improve are benchmarks that you've already seen. But you you expect there's some translation between that and the ability to train a transformative model.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I guess this one shouldn't be Massively uncertain, at least in the past, because it's kind of measurable in, in in theory. Maybe maybe some of the uncertainty comes in and like these trends keep continuing until they don't. And so projecting it forward is hard <laughs> to say because yeah. like, at some point, presumably, we'll level off and we'll have like the best algorithm possible and you can't get any better than that. So it'll be stuck. But we have no idea where that point's going to be or how fast we'll get there. So,
0: and I do assume a leveling off, but where I, I it's pretty arbitrary where I put it.
1: Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Let's move on to the next one, which I guess is probably going to be pretty familiar to everyone because it's kind of projecting Moore's law. Well, I guess we used to have Moore's law where it's uh, chips got, what was it, they they halved in price every year or two or something. And and recently things haven't been going as fast as that. But basically you're just trying to project that issue of the the cost of an equivalently good computer chip over time.
0: Yeah. And there, I think the biggest uncertainty, which I haven't looked into as much as I'd like, is not so much the speed of the having, but where it caps off. Where I think there's a lot of work one could do in terms of thinking about the physical limits of different types of computing and what is actually like the best physically realizable sort of energy efficiency of computation. And I I sort of instead did kind of an outside view thing where I was like, well, you know, over the last hundred years or, you know, over the last 70 years, we had 12 orders of magnitude of progress. So maybe over the next 80 years, we'll have half of that in log space. So like I just assumed we would have six orders magnitude of progress. It's not very thoroughly done.
1: Okay. Remind me, so we had Moore's law-ish like roughly being followed for something like 40 years. And then the last 10 years, things have been noticeably slower than that. Is that because we were kind of approaching roughly the limit of what we can do given the current paradigm, given the current materials that we're using?
0: Yeah, my understanding is that we're getting to the point where it's hard to make the transistors in the chips smaller without leading to issues with overheating and potentially even issues with they're like, you know, only a few atoms big at that point. And that it's like, you know, there there might be like quantum effects that I don't understand very well.
1: I see. Okay. And so what did you project forward? Did you project forward this kind of slow progress that we've had now? Or is it do you think that at some point it will speed up because we'll come up with a different method?
0: Yeah, so the most recent thing, like the jump from the previous state-of-the-art machine learning chip to the most recent state-of-the-art machine learning chip, which is the, the previous was the V100 and the current is the A100, seemed to be bigger than the like, slightly less recent 10-year trend you were talking about. And then I also think there's room to change substrates, like there's a lot of activity in the startup world researching optical computing, where you basically use light And like a bunch of tiny mirrors instead of silicon chips to like transfer information. So it's not going over a wire. It's just like being bounced off a mirror so it can go faster potentially.
1: Well, that's going to be huge for the tiny mirror industry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Presently not a very large industry, I think. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, go on.
0: (laughs) Um, So I just kind of split the difference and I was like, oh, well, like it'll be like kind of slower. Moore's Law was one to two years. The recent trend is three to four years. I just said it would be two and a half years having time.
1: All right. And the last one, which probably I hadn't thought about that much, and most people wouldn't have thought about that much, is how much was society willing to pay to train this amazing breakthrough AI model? Which I guess currently, I don't know how much, you know, how much does Google or the government or whatever the best research projects are, how much are they paying for those models? And I guess, presumably over time, it's been going up as they seem to have more applications.
0: So in terms of publicly calculatable information, the most expensive two models are which are in a similar range to each other, GPT-3 and Alpha Star, which was the StarCraft model. AlphaFold might be more. Like I haven't looked at AlphaFold, but both GPT-3 and Alpha Star are kind of in the one to ten million range for computation to train. And then there's more stuff that you need to do, like pre, like runs, training runs. Do you do to like tinker with stuff before the final training run? And like the cost of data and the cost of labor and stuff. That's I'm not counting here, but just purely from computation. If you sort of like math out how much computation it probably took to train them based on how big they are. It's like in the one to 10 million range.
1: It's so little. Sorry, I just... Yeah, it's really small. It's really small. Breakthroughs in biomedicine, like you were saying earlier, can cost billions, I guess, when you consider personnel and materials and so on. And this is so... I mean, I guess maybe most of the cost isn't in the compute, it's in the people or something. But even so, it's like surprisingly small. We could spend much more than that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So right now, it's not the case that compute is like most of the cost of these things. But I think probably eventually it will be the case that compute is the dominant cost. Or at least like half, you know. You might as well go to half because you're not even like increasing the cost of your project that much. So my my basic forecast is that so OpenAI has another blog post called AI and Compute in which they show that the like super recent trend of scaling up the computation of state of the art results is doubling every six months or something or every nine months. I, I don't quote me on that. I think it's I think it's six months. So I basically assumed that that trend would hold until models were were big enough that people would start to demand like real economic value from them before scaling up more. And then from there, I expected kind of a slower trend to hold that kind of converged to some fraction of gross domestic product. So I was kind of like, you know, big mega projects in the past, they tend to be kind of projects that last anywhere from like three to five years. And then over the course of that project, they spend, you know, a couple percent of GDP. And so, you know, I was assuming that a project to train a transformative model would be similar in those economics in the long run. And, you know, maybe compute would be half or a third of the total cost of the project. So I assumed 1% of GDP eventually. But there's like basically I'm imagining a, a super fast initial ramp up that lasts just a couple more years to get up to a billion, 10 billion And then like much slower ramp up or a somewhat slower ramp up that's more like doubling every two years from there to get up to 1% of GDP and then following GDP from there.
1: Okay, so things will kind of follow what seems to be the current trend, is your prediction roughly, until say we get to something like now we're talking about the Manhattan Project or the Apollo Project or the three gorges dam or something that's really actually material at which point it's got to it's got to demonstrate economic value or there's just no one willing to fund this thing and at that point maybe the the, the growth kind of levels off or at least at least until the thing actually works enough to increase gdp such that it can pay for right, itself right right yeah all right so we've got the four different pieces then i guess you're like multiplying and dividing them together uh, to get some, to get some overall thing <laughs> doing
0: some math doing yeah. some math
1: <laughs> or you're doing some i guess you do a monte carlo thing to like sample from each of these distributions on each one and then produce a like final distribution
0: yeah. So I actually, I think that would be the right thing to do, but the only thing that I'm actually modeling out a full distribution of uncertainty for is the, the first one, which is the biggest piece, the 2020 training computation requirements. And then the other ones, I have point estimates or like point forecasts. And then I just do an aggressive and a conservative and a best guess for those. But but the sort of proper thing to do would be to have like, to model out the uncertainty there too.
1: Okay. It seems like given that you're reasonably unsure about all of these or there's a reasonable uncertainty bounds that the conclusion would be like massively uncertain because you're like kind of compounding the uncertainty at each stage. And yet, and yet, interestingly, the actual range of time estimate isn't, it's not from like now until 10,000 years, like the, the amount of time isn't that wide. And I guess that's because some things are increasing enough, like exponentially. And so eventually, like it catches up within a reasonable time period, even in the pessimistic case. Is that, is that what's going on?
0: Yeah. I mean, so the computation requirements range is, it's sort of very wide in one sense. It spans 20 orders of magnitude, but it's also not wide in another sense, in the sense that like we have spanned more than that range or, or at least almost that range over the history of computing so far. So the real work is done by most of my probability mass is on something within the biological anchors, as opposed to something astronomically larger than that. And, th- and that's where the work is coming, coming from. So it's like 20 orders of magnitude is a huge range, but between exponentially improving algorithms and exponentially increasing spending and exponentially decreasing hardware costs, you can like chew through that range over a matter of decades as opposed mm, to centuries.
1: That makes sense. I guess I, I saw, I think at one point you added in a kind of a, I'm trying to think, of, a cludgy solution. you were like, and there's a 10% chance that I'm completely wrong about this. And in fact, like we don't get, yeah. it, we don't get it anywhere near now. <laughs> yeah, I do have
0: that. Yeah. Which <laughs> yeah.
1: so I guess I guess makes some sense. It's like, maybe we're just totally misunderstanding how the brain works and we've got this all wrong. And Yeah. Yeah. trying to. Trying I mean, maybe to,
0: it's like nanotech, right? Where like, you know, all these other technologies, it seems like you can kind of talk quantitatively about how much worse human technology is than natural technology. But there's some stuff like nanotech where we're just like, feels kind of silly to talk quantitatively about that. It just feels like we're not there.
1: We, don't, we can't do the thing. So imagining that you look back in the future and think that this report got things pretty wrong, what's the most likely way that you would have gotten it pretty wrong in either direction?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's more room to get it wrong in some sense in the direction that, you know, AI is like nowhere near where I think it is just because I, I find substantial probability like pretty soon. So like, you know, I could be off by a factor of two in that direction, and that would be scary and a big deal. But sort of like, why do I think it's like at all in this range? And could I be wrong there? I think a a sort of classic response is just the move where you ask the question, like, given 2020 algorithms, how much compute would it take? Even if you're allowing for it to be like way more than we can afford, that's just like not a fruitful intellectual move to make. And like, the answer is just astronomical and there's no reason to think it's near the biological anchors. There's no reason to think we are, our algorithms are as efficient as even evolution. And, you know, I, I don't think that it makes sense to assign uh, more than 50% probability to that claim, the claim that it's just nowhere in the range, mainly because the the range is, is large enough that I don't really trust most people's intuitions, even experts' intuitions, about what would definitely not be possible if we, you know, had 15 orders of magnitude more computation. That's not the kind of question that AI experts are trained to have expertise on. I have an intellectual style where I want to lean much more on an outside view, like the biological anchor's view, or like some of the other views that open fill researchers have been looking into, like just ignorance priors, once we're talking about that kind of range. One thing that I didn't get into when I was explaining the the center of the probability distribution, which is, like I said before, it's sort of assuming like there's a model of a certain size. It's somewhat bigger than the brain. That would be enough to be transformative. And you need some amount of data to train it. And then we have these scaling laws that say the number of samples or data points scales, you know, almost linearly, but sort of sublinearly with model size. From there, there's like a big sort of unfixed variable which is what counts as one data point or one sample like are we talking about like is one sample just seeing a single word like gpt3 is trying to predict one word and it gets feedback about whether it predicted that word correctly or like you know one image image net model like tries to predict an image then gets the right answer and updates on that or is it more like a game of starcraft where like the starcraft model plays this whole game and then it finds out whether it won and then that sort of propagates backwards and like updates it and you could imagine sort of games that you're training the model on that take much longer than StarCraft to like resolve whether you've won or lost. So that's what I'm calling that general concept is what I'm calling the effective horizon length, where like currently you have models, I mentioned earlier that Alpha Star and GPT-3 both cost about the same amount to train, but Alpha Star is much, much smaller than GPT-3. Alpha Star is 3,000 times smaller than GPT-3. And that was because like, in part, it was because each data point for Alpha Star is a game rather than a word. And so there's like a big question mark about how dense can we get the feedback to train a transformative model? Will we be able to get away with giving it feedback once every minute? And that's actually rich, useful feedback. Or are there some things that just need to play out over a longer period of time before we can tell whether, you know, a certain direction of change is good or not?
1: Unfortunately, we we got to move on. But I guess uh, this uh, (laughs) this report is online for people who are interested to to learn more. We'll stick up a link to it, and um, maybe also a presentation that explains what we just went through in in a bit more detail. If people want to think about it and has has nice graphs. I guess the the bottom line for me is that having looked into all of this, you are pretty unsure when transformative AI might come, but you think it could be soon, could be a medium amount of time away, and I guess you haven't found any reason to think that that there won't be like a transformative AI within the amount of time period over which we could plausibly plan for thinking about how that might affect us and how it might go better or worse.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think I would would frame it as like 12 to 15% by 2036, which was the kind of the original question, a median of 2055 and then, you know, 70 to 80% chance this century is how I would put the bottom line.
1: Hey listeners, uh, Rob here. I'm just uh, interrupting this interview to uh, let you know that, um, as many of you know, 80,000 Hours has an advising service, uh, which we spoke about last year in our interview with Michelle Hutchinson. At the moment, the advising team is looking for more people to advise, uh, and they thought that people who have listened this far into the interview with Ajaya uh, could potentially be uh, really good people to speak to. Of course, uh, spots are still limited, uh, but if you're someone who's considering potentially going into one of the global problems that uh, that 80,000 Hours is familiar with, or going into one of the career tracks that we've uh, spoken about uh, on this show, or if you're uh, really enjoying this interview uh, and are just generally interested in figuring out how you could potentially uh, do more good for the world, then uh, you can find out more about the advising uh, and one-on-one service uh, and uh, what kind of advice and help we can actually offer at 80,000hours.org slash advising. There you can uh, figure out whether we're actually likely to be able to help uh, and apply to get a session with one of our advisors. All right, uh, back to the interview. All right. So working on big open-ended reports like this can be a bit of a mess. And I think like difficult for people intellectually and I guess also psychologically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What what are the biggest challenges with this work? How do you think that uh, you almost got tripped up or that other people tend to get tripped up?
0: I mean, one thing that's really tough is like, Academic fields that have been around for a while have a sort of intuition or or aesthetic that they pass on to like new members about what's like a unit of publishable work. Like it's sometimes called like a publon, right? Like what kind of result is big enough and what kind of argument is compelling enough and complete enough that you can like package it into a paper and publish it. And I think with the work that we're trying to do Partly because it's new and partly because of the kind of nature of the work itself, it's much less clear what a publishable unit is or like when you're done. And you like almost always find yourself in a situation where like there's a lot more research you could do than you sort of assumed naively going in. And it's not always like a bad thing. It's not always like you're being inefficient or you're going down rabbit holes if you choose to do that research and you just end up doing a much bigger project than you thought you were going to do. I think this was the case with all of the like timelines work that we did at OpenFill, like my report and then other reports. It was always the case that we, we came in, we thought, I thought I would do kind of like a more simple evaluation of arguments made by our technical advisors, but then complications came up and then it was it just became a much longer project. And I don't regret most of that. So it's not as simple as saying like, just just really force yourself to guess at the outset how much time you want to spend on it and just spend that time. But at the same time, there definitely are rabbit holes and there definitely are like things you can do that eat up a bunch of time without giving you much epistemic value. So like standards for that seem like a big, difficult issue with this work.
1: Okay. So yeah. So this question of, yeah, what's the publishable unit and what rabbit holes should you, should you go down? Are there any other ways things can go wrong that stand out or mistakes that you you potentially made at some points?
0: Yeah, I mean, looking back, I think I did a lot of what I sort of think of as like defensive writing, where basically there were a bunch of things I knew about the subject that were like, you know, definitely true. And I could explain them nicely and like they lean on math and stuff, but those things were like only peripherally relevant to the central point I wanted to make. And then there were a bunch of other things that were like hard and messy and mostly intuitions I had. And like, I didn't know how to formalize them, but they were doing most of the real work. One big example is that of the four things we talked about, the most important one by far is the 2020 computation requirements. Like how much computation would it take to train transformative model if we had to do it today? But it was also the most nebulous and least defensible. So like I found myself wanting to spend more time on hardware forecasting where I could say stuff that didn't sound stupid. And <laughs> and so like, I you know, as I s- sat down to write this big report after I had like a sort of internal draft, I had an internal draft all the way back in like November of 2019. And then I sat down to write the the like publishable draft. And I was like, okay, I'll clean up this internal draft. But I just like found myself being pulled to writing things like knowing that like fancy ML people would read this. I found myself being pulled to just like demonstrating that I knew stuff. <laughs> um, and so I would just be like, I, I'd write, you know, 10 pages on machine learning theory that were like, you know, perfectly reasonable intros to machine learning theory. But actually this horizon length question was the real crux and it was like messy and like not found in any textbook. And so I had to like do a lot to curb my instinct to defensive writing and my instinct to like put stuff in there just because I wanted to like dilute the like crazy speculative stuff with a lot of facts and like show people (laughs) that I knew what I was talking about.
1: Yeah, that's understandable. How did the work affect you kind of personally from a happiness or job satisfaction or mental health point of view? Because I think sometimes people throw themselves against the problems like this. And I think it causes them to feel very anxious because they don't know whether they're doing a good job or a bad job, or they don't feel they're making progress, or they feel depressed because they worry that they they haven't figured it out yet and they feel bad about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I had a lot of those emotions. Like I think the most fun part of the project was like the beginning parts where my audience was mostly myself and Holden. And I was like reading these arguments that our technical advisors made and basically just like finding issues with them and like explaining what I learned. And that's just a very fun way to be. You're sort of like you, you have something you can bite onto and react to, and then you're like pulling stuff out of it and like restating it and finding issues with it. It's much more rewarding for me than like, you're looking at a blank page and you have to, you're no longer writing something in response to somebody else. You have to just like lay it all out for somebody who has no idea what you're talking about. And so I was starting writing this final draft, uh, the the draft that eventually became the thing posted on Less Wrong in January of 2020. And I gave myself a deadline of March 9th, to write it all. (laughs) And in fact, I spent most of January and half of February really stressed out about how I would even frame the model. And a lot of the stuff we were talking about, about like, there are these four parts. And then the first part is like, if we had to do it today, how much computation would it take to train? All of that came out of this angsty phase where before I was just like, you know, how much computation does it take to train TAI? And like, when will we get that? But that had this important conceptual flaw that I ended up spending a lot of time on, which is like, no, that number is different in different years because of algorithmic progress. And so like, I was trying to force myself to just write down what I thought I knew, but I had like a long period of being like, this is, you know, this is bad. Like people will look at this and if if they're kind of exacting rigorous people, they will be like, this doesn't make sense. There's no such thing as the amount of computation to train a transformative model. And I was very hung up on that kind of stuff. And I think Sometimes it's great to be hung up on that kind of stuff. And in particular, I think my report is stronger because I was hung up on that particular thing. But sometimes it's just like, you know, you're like killing yourself over something. You should just say, this is kind of a vague, fuzzy notion, but you know what I mean. And it's just like so hard to figure out when to do one versus the other.
1: Yeah. I think knowing this problem of often the most important things can't be rigorously justified and you kind of just have to state your honest opinion, like all things considered, given everything you know about the world and your general intuitions, like that's the best you can do. And like trying to do something else is just like a f- kind of fake science thing that you're going where you're going through the motions of defending yourself against critics. Yeah,
0: like physics envy. Yeah,
1: right. I think <laughs> I had a lot of physics that, envy. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just like more indignant about that now. I'm just like, look. I, I think this, you don't necessarily have to agree with me, but I'm just going to like give you my number and I'm not going to feel bad about it at yeah. all. And I won't feel bad if you don't agree because this is just, this unfortunately is the state of the art process that we have for estimating <laughs> this one is just to like say <laughs> what we think. I mean, so sometimes you can do better, but sometimes you really are pretty yeah. stuck.
0: And I think just learning the difference is really hard because like, I do think this report, I believe, has made some progress toward justifying things that were previously just like intuitions we stated. But then there were there were many things where I hoped to do that, that, you know, I, ha- I had to give up on. I think also doing a report that is trying to get it get to a number on like an important decision relevant question is like a ton of pressure because like you can be like really good at laying out the arguments and like finding all the considerations and stuff but like your brain might not be weighing them right and like how you weigh them like the alchemy going on in your head when you assign weights to like lifetime versus evolution versus things in between make a huge difference to the final number and you know if you feel like your job is to get the right number that can be like really, really scary and stressful. So like I've tried to reframe it as like my job is to lay out the arguments and make a model that makes sense. You know, how the inputs get turned into outputs makes sense and is clear to people. And so like the next person who wants to come up with their views on timelines doesn't have to do all the work I did, but they still need to like put in their numbers. Like my job is not to get the ultimate right numbers. I think reframing that was really important for my mental health.
1: Yeah, because that's something you actually have like a decent shot at having control over whether you succeed at that. Whereas being able yeah. to produce the right number is like to a much greater degree out of your out of your hands. All right, another part of this, I guess this is a big, big mood shift here, but uh, another part of the uh, project of trying to figure out how Phil should uh, disperse its money is trying to think, well, should it, be giving away more now? Or should we be holding onto our money to give it away at some at some future time when perhaps we'll have other opportunities that could be better or worse? And I guess uh, you guys call this the, the last dollar project.
0: Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So basically the idea is that if there's diminishing returns to the money we're giving away, then the last dollar we give away, it should be in expectation, the least valuable dollar. And furthermore, like if we give away $1 today, the, the thing it's trading off against, the opportunity cost, is whatever we would have spent the last dollar on. And so the, the sort of like theoretically clean answer is that if we, if we know the, the value of our last dollar, then we should be giving to everything we find that's more cost-effective than that. Like every year, we should look around and fund everything that seems better than our last dollar and hold on to all the rest. So that's kind of like the conceptual answer to both, you know, giving now versus giving later and what, what should we spend our money on? And so the goal, there's like kind of two, two sides to this. One is like trying to think about what might we spend our last dollar on? How good is that? And then the other is trying to think about like, you know, what, what should we expect about like how many opportunities there are that are better than the last dollar in each future year? So we're trying to like kind of quantify it instead of asking like, is now better or worse than later? You know, is giving now better or worse than giving later? We're trying to like get a rough sense of the allocation across time that we should expect will be reasonable. And so on the last dollar question, I've done some work on that on the long-termist side, like in terms of like what, do we maybe spend the last dollar on? For the near-termist side, my colleague Peter is working on putting together a model of allocation over time for the near-termist side, where like they have a bit better of a sense of what their last dollar is than we do, because they have like, you know, GiveWell has been working for like more than a decade on like mapping out these global health interventions that have massive room for more funding and really high cost effectiveness. So the near-termist side is mostly trying to like, beat the benchmark set by GiveWell and assume that like the things like GiveWell top charities will be able to absorb marginal money. And so, so Peter has been working on this model that is like basically a more complex variant of Phil Trammell's model. Phil Trammell recently put out this paper called patient philanthropy or something, I think. And so, so Peter is working on a more complex variant of this model that like is, is going to like give a rough guide to how the near-termist side should spend down its money. Basically, the way the model works is like on the one side, you're like money is growing because you're putting it in the market and it's getting some percent return per year. And then on the other hand, opportunities to do good, we assume are declining over time because like other funders are coming in and funding those things or the world is generally getting better and problems are solved, getting solved on their own. Like the sort of baseline rate of disease is going down stuff like that and these are the two main forces and then there are a bunch of other forces you could also model like you know maybe giving now helps you learn how to give better and like each year has diminishing returns because you can't like you can't give an organization hundred million dollars in one year just because you could have given it 10 million dollars over each of 10 years stuff like that and so like the, this model is like trying to net all of this out and then come up with like an expected allocation across time. And like, basically because all of the individual parameters are constant growth or decay. So there's like a percent that your money is growing every year. And then there's like a percent that you're assuming opportunities are declining every year. It spits out, basically, you should give out a constant fraction of your money every year. You should expect to give out a constant fraction. And that constant fraction could be zero because you should sort of save indefinitely if the parameters shake out that way. Or it could be, very high such that you're essentially trying to spend down as fast as possible or it could be somewhere in between where like you're you're not drawing down your principal, but you're giving away some of the interest so those are the kind of three regimes.
1: Okay so just to check that I've got that straight because GiveWell or those who are focused on kind of human charity today have a better sense of what their future giving opportunities will be and how effective they'll be you're kind of using that as a baseline to compare for the other programs saying well we'll Will we have better opportunities within this program than the near-term human thing? And I guess, what was the time frame you were thinking about?
0: Uh, our main funders, Kerry and Dustin, want to spend down most of their fortune within their lifetime. So we're usually thinking of like a sort of several decade time span, like 50 years or 100 years, sort of experimenting with different, like what happens when you set the deadline in different places.
1: I see. And then you add in a bunch of other things like discount rate and return on investment. And I suppose learning effects and things like that that, that that happen out every year and then build this into a model that says how much, how much you should give away. How much of the decision comes down to just this really difficult empirical question where be you, like the factory farming program and the biosecurity folks have to say, well, how good will the opportunities in this area be in 40 years time, which seems really hard to answer.
0: Yeah. So I don't know as much about the animal inclusive Near-termist worldview. But roughly speaking, I would say the human-centric near-termist worldview gets more juice out of doing a model like this that recommends some percent you should expect to give away each year. And they still have to do a bunch of empirical work to like find the actual opportunities that meet that bar, but they're able to sort of look ahead and be like, okay, we need to prepare to like give. X percent because like our model says like that should be roughly optimal based on what we believe. We still need to like empirically find those opportunities and we might end up finding more or less than that, but it's like kind of a guideline. On the long-term side, it's a lot trickier and we don't expect it to look like the optimum is some constant fraction given away every year. We kind of expect it to, to sort of more track the shape of like existential risk. So, you know, for example, on AI risk, we expect there to be like more opportunities roughly like 5 or 10 years before transformative AI than either before or after. So like before, you sort of less know the shape of how things are going to go and like there are fewer people who want to work on this that you could fund and your sort of impacts could be washed out by things that happen in the future. And then after that point, it might be something that like there's a ton of money in the space. And so like your, your dollars are like less leverage. So we're imagining there's some window before transformative AI where we'll be spending a lot more than we'd be spending before or after that window.
1: Yeah. Okay, so it seems like both this big model, but I suppose Carrie and Dustin, they want to spend out all the money before they die. And I guess assuming they live a normal human lifespan, we're talking, we've maybe got 50 years to play with or something like that. In a sense, there's not that much flexibility. And you also have to just think about how quickly could you plausibly scale your ability to find really good grant opportunities. That's also slightly uh, potentially a a bottleneck at the moment. So in fact, like how much does this influence your decisions or are, are you in practice bound by other constraints that in fact are doing most of the work?
0: Yeah, so I I think, again, it's a little bit different on the near-termist versus the long-termist side. So on the long-termist side, we're not building out much of an allocation over time model. We're mostly just focused on the question of how good is the last dollar. And we're in a regime where like we are finding substantially fewer giving opportunities than we would like to be because these fields are small. And so we want to be funding basically everything that's better than that last dollar. And then on the near-termist side, I think, like I said before, there's more guidance so the, the model that Peter is working on, unlike Phil Trammell's model, allows for you to set deadlines. Like if you have a sort of separate constraint that so you really want to have given away the money by date X. And, and that, that changes recommendations somewhat, like you, like you would imagine. But there's still kind of like, depending on how the other parameters are set besides the deadline, there's like a range that you could end up with in terms of like how much you're, you should be sort of roughly aiming to give away per year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this is so important that it's something Phil is going to keep tinkering with probably as long as it exists. But is there kind of any bottom line of like what fraction of the total principle that you have now you would want to be giving away each year, all things considered?
0: I don't know because I am not working on the near-term side of the project, so I'd rather not speak for them. But hopefully you can grab someone from that team on your podcast pretty soon. I don't know. And then I can talk about the last dollar thinking on the long-termist side, which is just like, how good is this last dollar? Not so much like allocation over time, exactly. So, you know, there there are basically like two projects, one that I worked on a while back and one that I'm like just starting to work on now. And the one that I worked on a while back was basically we wanted to seek something that could be an intervention where we could robustly spend a lot of money. So on the near-termist side, the analogy here is give directly because give directly is like you know very hugely scalable almost unboundedly scalable in the regime of like the money openphil has access to we expect there to be like roughly linear returns because as you're giving cash transfers to extremely poor people there's such a large number of extremely poor people at roughly the same level of income that you're not really hitting diminishing returns until you're giving away substantially more than openphil could afford to give away anyway and so That's the kind of lower bound of like near-termist last dollar because it's something, it's like one thing that we could put all of the money into and we would expect all of it to get roughly 100x return because the individuals we're giving to are roughly 100 times poorer than the average American. And so we were kind of like seeking something that we thought That would be like the give directly of long-termism. So it's like kind of one big intervention that we can spend a lot of money on that has like roughly linear returns in that regime. And the goal here was just to like kind of demonstrate that if we really wanted to, the long-termist worldview could find things to spend money on because that is like a big question in terms of long-termist worldview and that it would be like a sort of reasonable return on investment and that we think we could do better than this. But like, you know, that this give directly of long-termism is at least reasonable. So that was the goal. So we turned to like biosecurity for this because basically like bioscience is expensive and biotech is expensive. And there's like a pretty big field of people we could potentially co-opt to do things that we think are valuable on long-termist grounds. I mean, there's not so much, not so much in AI and other, other sort of causes sort of are like less expensive to just do things in because they're more kind of like thinking about stuff. And so what we ended up landing on was this notion of funding like meta-R&D to help make responses to new pathogens like COVID faster. So like currently we saw it takes like, you know, several months to a year once we like learn of a new pathogen to develop either a vaccine or antiviral and then distribute it. So there are a bunch of things we could potentially do to reduce that.
1: I guess one other suggestion that I've heard as a kind of baseline long-termist intervention is reducing carbon emissions through like carbon offsetting or, you know, subsidizing the scale up of solar energy or something like that. Did you consider that?
0: So we looked into climate change from a long-termist perspective a while back. We didn't do a super deep investigation, but like Toby says in his in his recent book, The Precipice, we felt that it was substantially less good on a long-termist perspective than the big two that we focus on, which is AI and biosecurity. So we we kind of wanted a lower bound here, but we also wanted to, we basically wanted to find the, the biggest thing that was still kind of low uncertainty in terms of our ability to spend the money. Because the big questions on AI are like, do we even find anything to give the money to, given the field is so small?
1: Yeah. Okay, carry on.
0: So the we, we're looking at meta-R&D to make responses to new pathogens faster. So like currently it takes several months We thought like, you know, spending a lot of money on a lot of different fronts could bring it down to like a month or a few weeks in terms of like the calendar time from new virus comes on the scene to we have a vaccine or an antiviral and we're starting to roll it out. So, you know, a a bunch of things we could potentially do. One thing is just like funding people to develop and, and stockpile broad spectrum vaccines which are like vaccines that are that are trying to like target a biological mechanism that's common to like a big family of viruses. So potentially, if we found a broad spectrum flu vaccine, say, that vaccine could protect people against a much more dangerous kind of engineered version of the flu, too, because it's like targeting mechanisms that are sort of fundamental to all the different flus. And you could imagine like funding tools for like rapid on site detection, like, you know, as soon as one person gets the virus, you can just like, you know, go on site, you can sequence it really quickly. You can like map out its protein structure, maybe with something like alpha fold. And then you sort of come up with guesses about what molecules will like bind well to the molecules on the pathogen. So you cut out some of the trial and error in drug development. So there's stuff like this that we were imagining funding, and there's a lot we could potentially fund, especially with the manufacture and stockpile of vaccines. So this was, this was why we were sort of like hoping it could be kind of like a give directly of long-termism type thing. And so- With that, the basic structure of the cost effectiveness estimate was like, we expect that eventually as civilization becomes more technologically mature, we will have this ability to kind of like rapidly detect and prevent diseases. But we're kind of moving that forward in time by like funding the field and like beefing it up earlier. You know, we can move forward in time by several months or a year, the point at which we have the like... Mature technology as opposed to the current technology. And then, like, we would basically cut into some chunk of the X risk in that window that we moved it forward. So, like, if in 2041 we would have had this ability and we caused it so that it happened in 2040 instead, then there's some fraction of like one year worth of bio X risk that's reduced.
1: Okay, that makes sense. So what kind of conclusions has this, has this led to, if anything, about whether you should kind of spend down the resources faster or slower, making this comparison, I guess, to funding this kind of meta-science uh, decades, decades in the future?
0: Yeah, so this estimate is roughly $200 trillion per world saved in expectation. So, you know, it's, it's actually like billions of dollars for some small fraction of the world saved, and dividing that out gets you to $200 trillion per world saved. This is quite good in the scheme of things because it's like, you know, less than two years worth of gross world product. So like it's like everyone in the world working together on this one problem for like 18 months to save the world. So, you know, that's that's quite good in some sort of like cosmic sense. Right. Because it would be worth like, you know, decades of gross world product to to save the world potentially. But, you know, we were aiming for this to be conservative because like likely we would spread across multiple long-termist focus areas instead of just biosecurity and AI risk is something that we think has like a currently higher cost effectiveness. So it didn't necessarily cause us to like change how we're expecting to spend down In the immediate term, just because we're still in the regime where like we're trying to find grantees that are on target with what we want to fund and are focusing on existential risk as opposed to other problems. And so that's a huge bottleneck to getting money out the door. And it still is. So it wasn't like we were in a position where we were spending a lot and we realized, oh, you know, actually, the last dollar is good, so we should cut back or save. Like, we weren't in that regime and we knew we weren't. But the goal of this project was just to kind of reduce uncertainty on whether we could, like, say the long-termist bucket had all of the money. Could it actually spend that? Like, we felt much more confident that if we gave all the money to the near-termist side, they could spend it on stuff that broadly seemed quite good and not like a Pascal's mugging. And we wanted to see what would happen if all the money had gone to the long-term side. It's like you were saying earlier, you know, if a worldview is just getting like zero marginal return on its own perspective from like getting twice as much more money, then it just seems like intuitively a lot less appealing to give that worldview more money. So like that was the main goal of this project.
1: I guess basically like you guys are going to keep researching this and I suppose that eventually at some point though, it'll, it'll be like a publication that will like lay this out.
0: Or... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it might not be this particular thing, the, the last dollar question and to a lesser extent, the allocation over time question is just one that's always on our minds. And so like the more recent work that I've been doing ties into the AI timelines work. It's trying to do like a last dollar cost effectiveness estimate, but it's less trying to look for the give directly of long-termism. So it's like one big expensive intervention and more trying to think about like, you know, 10 interventions that could each take a 10th of the money and trying to be more like a best guess for like what we actually spend the bulk of it on and focused on AI as opposed to biosecurity in this case.
1: Does OpenFill kind of keep track of the the most important disagreements that different staff members have with one another. I'm just imagining, presumably people have views that are all kind of all over the shop on, on this issue and potentially other ones as well. And uh, I guess I could imagine you guys have the sort of people would have a huge spreadsheet yeah. of lot, track all of these things and then take the median <laughs> or the harmonic mean, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> the harmonic mean.
1: <laughs> I don't even so, know what that is. <laughs> Sorry. Go on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, I wish that we sort of more had the capacity to do this. I think GiveWell does this a lot. So like, you know, GiveWell every year, they have their charity recommendations and there are these like thorny questions of values and like how to interpret ambiguous research. And like, you know, there's like 10 researchers in a room arguing about them. And then they put out a spreadsheet that has like columns for like all 10 individuals and like their disagreements. And GiveWell usually reports the median we don't really have that kind of system for most things just because open fill is significantly more siloed and we're sort of spread out over more like quite diverse topics. So there, and there are only like a couple of people who, who have their head in like each of these topics at a time. So like, you know, with, with AI timelines, there are like three or four people that have been like have their head at least somewhat in that. And only two of those people say are like really deeply in it. And similarly with biosecurity, there are only two or three people who think about it and only like one person who's like really deeply in it. And so there's a lot more deference going on across major areas than would be ideal if we had more staff and like more of the ability to give the give well treatment to each thing. And so like, you know, within a particular area when it's important and there's like kind of a largest number of people with some, some amount of expertise, we try to sort of get polls and get estimates from a lot of different people. So, you know, one area where we're able to do this more because we have kind of more people who think about it is with respect to the EA community. So we are experimenting with having more voices in like grant-making decisions within the EA community. But, but most areas don't really have that. And we're not sure that experiment is actually actually kind of leads to better or more efficient decisions. It's still up in the air.
1: Yeah. So we might might wrap this up because I guess listeners who are interested in this timing of giving and patient philanthropy can uh, go and listen to the interview with Philip Trammell from back in earlier in the year, where we go through a lot of these considerations, uh, very forensically uh, consider them, very patiently. And I guess uh, <laughs> there probably will there probably be some blog posts on, on this topic from Open Phil uh, in, in coming years because it seems like it's going to be an important topic for you guys to figure out over the very long term. Before we finish, I would like to get in some discussion of what it's like working at Open Phil, and I guess what, what the opportunities are at, at the moment. I mean, I think last time we talked about this on the show with someone who works at Open Phil, it was two years ago. And since then, I know the organization has grown pretty substantially. So maybe that has shifted the culture and uh, what it's like to be there. So yeah, how have things changed over the last couple of years? I guess you've been there for four
0: yeah, so I think, I mean, unfortunately, I think we started off, I would say, on a trajectory to being much more collaborative, and then COVID happened. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I like having, particularly now, the recent wave of hiring was a lot of generalist hires. And I think that now there's like kind of more of a critical mass of generalists at OpenFill than there was before before i think there were only a few now they're kind of more like tenish people and it's nice because there's more there's a lot more fluidity on what those people work on and so like a lot more opportunities for sort of casual one-off collaboration than there is between the program staff with each other or the generalists with the program staff so like a lot of the feeling of collaboration and like teaminess and collegiality is partly driven by like does each part of this super siloed organization have its own critical mass And I feel like the answer is no for most parts of the organization. But recently, the generalist sort of group of people, both on the long-termist and near-termist side together, have like kind of more people, more opportunities for like ideas to bounce and like collaborations that make sense than there were before. And I'm hoping like as we get bigger and as each part gets bigger, that'll be more and more true.
1: I guess as organizations become bigger, things tend to become a bit more like organized and standardized and bureaucratized. Which has its, has its good sides, it also has its bad sides. Uh, has that been the case with OpenFill as well? Or is it, are there a like sufficient number of small cells that actually it still feels like a small organization?
0: Yeah. So I think a lot of my day-to-day feels like a pretty small organization still, but even even in a pretty siloed organization, there are some things that's important to hammer out as we get to the scale we're at, which is like 45-ish people and like beyond. So, you know, we're working actively on making OpenFilm more professionalized in the sense of like, especially as sort of clearer standards for performance and promotion and like fairer compensation across the different areas. So like, you know, what does it mean to be a program associate in farm animal welfare versus effective altruism versus, you know, science or criminal justice reform. These like Focus areas have like different needs and like different ways they operate within their fields, but we still want it to be fair that if you are like a senior program associate and you look around and you're wondering, you know, why why is this other person a program officer instead of a senior program associate, or why is this other person a program associate instead of a senior program associate? You don't want it to be the case that people can look to the left and look to the right and see people doing their same job or they what they feel like is their same job, but are sort of compensated differently for that. So thinking. Thinking carefully about that is like one of the things we're aiming to do over the next year or two.
1: What do you like and dislike most about your job?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think likes are that, obviously the mission and like, I think my colleagues are just incredibly thoughtful and like kind people that I feel like super value aligned with and that's awesome. And then dislikes, it comes back to the thing I was saying about, it's a pretty siloed organization. So like each each particular team is quite small. And then within each team, people are spread thin. So there's like one person thinking about timelines and there's one person thinking about biosecurity. And it it means that the collaboration you can get from your colleagues and even the sort of feeling of team and the encouragement you can get from your colleagues is more limited because they don't have their head in what you're up to. And it's very hard for them to get their head in what you're up to. And so people often don't find that people read their reports that they worked really hard on as much as they would like, except for their manager or like a small sort of set of decision makers who are like looking to read that thing. And so I think that can be kind of disheartening. And then in terms of like my particular job, I mean, all the stuff I was saying is very stressful putting together this report in a lot of ways that we were talking about earlier And, and just feeling, feeling responsible for coming to a bottom line number without a lot of like feedback or a lot of like diffusion of responsibility <laughs> that comes from like a bunch of people putting in the numbers and like
1: that seems particularly hard. That,
0: that's quite stressful. Um and it's quite stressful to to basically be doing the kind of work where you are just like inevitably going to miss your deadlines a bunch. Like you're inevitably going to think, I know what I'm talking about, I'm going to write it down. But like actually you didn't and you aren't and like you're going to have to push and you're going to have to push like many times over. That can be disheartening, but I think just being aware of the dynamic has been helpful for me.
1: Yeah. From memory, when Phil was hiring uh, a couple of years ago, I think like a thousand people applied for for a bunch of jobs and then 10 people got trials and something like five people actually got hired. So like, there's a hush odds. <laughs> is, is there anything you can say to people who, I guess, either don't think that it's plausible that I get hired by Phil, and maybe are a bit disappointed by that or, you know, have applied and maybe didn't didn't manage to get a trial?
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess my, my first thought is that, you know, Phil is not people's only opportunity to do good. <laughs> Even doing generalist research of the kind that I think Phil does a lot of, there are a lot of, I mean, especially for that kind of research, I think it's a blessing and a curse, but you just need like a desk and a computer to do it. You know, I would love to see people like giving, giving it a shot more. And I think it's a great way to get noticed. So like, you know, when we write reports, all the reports we put out recently have long lists of open questions that I think people could work on. And, you know, I know of people doing doing work on them and that's really exciting to me. So, you know, that that's one one way to just kind of like get your foot in the door, both in terms of potentially being noticed at a place like OpenPhil or a place like FHI or GPI, and also just like get a sense of what does it feel like to do this? And do you like it or or are the cons outweighing the pros for you? In terms of generalist roles, that's, that's kind of like one thought I have. And then on a sort of more procedural note, so OpenFill is trying to be kind of more forward-looking and long-term and patient with our recruiting pipeline. So we're we have a general application up where like even if you are happy with where you're at now and like you want to stay at your current job for a couple of years, you know, if you're interested in eventually making a transition into this type of work, you know, feel free to drop your name on the general application and say what types of roles you might be interested in. And that's a good way to just like stay in touch and stay on our radar.
1: Yeah. Because one thing I very often say to people who are, I guess, disappointed when they have applied for a job and they and they haven't gotten it is just that it's very natural to kind of take that as a personal insult, that you, like you have somehow being like jilted because you weren't good enough. But very often the most important thing is the fit between the person and the role and the organization, the people they'd be working with, and what they know. And that, that stuff can just be like extremely specific. I mean, there are brilliant, incredibly smart people out there who just like aren't a good fit for working at openfill, and that's like and that's totally, no dump yeah. on them. It's, it's that yeah they, they should be doing something else where they're just more likely to to flourish because open Phil has this very particular culture, which I guess, as we've just heard, is uh, challenging in some ways. It's like it's not all uh, a better a bed of roses. There's also ways <laughs> in which it's like it's, it''s it's it's challenging work like intellectually and uh, and emotionally.
0: And yeah, I mean, emotionally, I think the emotional element is like really big there. Like I think it's a certain disposition of like the cocktail of like being arrogant enough and weird enough (laughs) to think that you could answer these big questions, but also being sort of, you know, finicky enough and particular enough about like dotting I's and crossing T's that you can kind of like make those weird areas just one notch more rigorous than they were before, but Mm. not 10 notches because (laughs) otherwise you're going to be working on it for 20 years. You know, it's it's a sort of like some kind of like epistemic culture that's very contingent that we think some people fit into that helps thread that needle. But there are other places that want to be on like a more more bold, innovative, weird, quote, arrogant side of the spectrum and places that want to be on the more like careful, rigorous, complete side of the spectrum too. And that just like changes what you can work on and like what frontier you're operating at basically.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I think you were just about to say this earlier, but I guess for listeners who, who do think that this sounds like something that they'd be interested in, where they, they do have the right level of attention to detail and persistence and, uh, <laughs> but, but not but not too much <laughs> persistence. Uh, yeah. How can they get on- <laughs> Not
0: too much persistence.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> La- laziness can be a virtue. In fact, very often it is a virtue. Yeah. How can they get on, on open Phil's radar or find out, or like stay abreast of opportunities to potentially meet people and, and escalate their involvement?
0: Yeah. So, I mean- please do drop your name on our general application and we can put up a link to that on the on the podcast page and research is definitely not all open does there's like grant making stuff too but in terms of the kinds of things I'm working on and like kind of know best. I do think it's it's possible to try it out with these like open questions that we list on our other reports, and also you know just just reading stuff written by FHI or at GPI and like thinking about like is there a piece of this I can break off that seems intrinsically interesting to me where I could make a unit of progress and put it up on the EA forum, put it up on Less Wrong, put it up on the Alignment Forum. You know I think that's a great way to just straight up add value and also also get noticed by this sort of ecosystem of organizations that are doing this kind of work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have recently been trailing someone. And I think maybe the, the reason that they stood out was just the incredible compilation of work that they had on their personal website across a whole bunch of different like writing that they'd done, artistic stuff that they'd done, I guess. Yeah. Or actually actually audio stuff that they'd done as well. As well. And that they, they yeah, they just shown kind of a persistent interest and ability to to produce interesting stuff. So that's that's definitely one way to stand out from the crowd. Cause for, some, I mean, for some reason I mean, most great. people don't have that.
0: A great thing to do actually is just explaining stuff that other people have just said and didn't explain very well can be like great for learning and for teaching and for demonstrating the kind of thinking that would allow you to do like more original research down the line. And this can be in any format, like writing up explainers. There was a great explainer on Less Wrong about the scaling laws you were talking about. Actually, that was like really helpful, and you could like make YouTube videos explaining things. Like the Robert Miles AI videos are great. So that stuff—it doesn't have to be like pushing forward the frontier. You can still, you know, both add value and like really make yourself stand out with explainers.
1: Yeah. One final question before you go. As, uh, I've got the weekend coming up, and not a whole lot planned. Are there any good good movies or TV shows you've seen recently <laughs> that you can recommend to me? So it's it's the weather's looking pretty grim <laughs> this weekend, so <laughs> yeah. going to be indoors. Um,
0: so I uh, have started, this is very redundant with everything everyone else has told you, I'm sure. I've started The Queen's Gambit. I'm two episodes in and I like, I quite like it so far. And it's basically like a sports movie wrapped in like a prestige TV wrapper about this girl that's like on the rise to superstardom and chess. And I also like, this is much more, much less prestige, but I also like another Netflix show, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce which I'm finding very entertaining, sort of like about snobby LA housewives going through divorce.
1: Nice. Yeah. Netflix has been pushing Queen's Gambit so hard. Every time I open it, they're they're insisting that I watch this thing. (laughs) I feel like they're going to cancel my subscription if I opt out of it. But
0: (laughs) But also every single person in my life too, like my friends and like my partner's aunt's boyfriend, like they're all in it. So I definitely, I caved. I mean, it's good.
1: (laughs) It's good? Okay. I guess, uh, listeners, if you're in the same situation as me this weekend, uh, I watched Knives Out this week, which is kind of a murder yes. mystery twist, you know, with like various love, different twists of the way did through. You,
0: did you know they're making a sequel? Oh, There's going to be a whole Benoit Blanc series. <laughs> it's going to be like Hercule Poirot. It's going to be so oh, great. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah, no, I, it's a really good character. I think it's Daniel Craig doing a Southern American accent, which like yeah. mm, <laughs> rubbed me the wrong way for the first 10 minutes, but, really then, I, but then I just rolled <laughs> with it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, like,
0: it's got a great all-star cast too. Yeah, and yeah. that movie like really launched me on like, the search for the perfect murder mystery movies I think it's like a really 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 slim pickings in terms of good murder mysteries that are just about the mystery instead of like a character study or something else mm.
1: yeah it's the story is is impressively good I can see why so many top actors signed on because they would have read that script and be like wow this is really cool
0: <laughs> yeah yeah totally right <laughs>
1: All right. Well, uh, with that out of the way, we've covered some fun stuff here and some pretty, pretty dense stuff. But I think I, I understand all, all of these topics are a bunch, a bunch better now. My guest today has been Ja Kotra. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Ajaya.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay. Well, sadly, that brings us to the end of our classic episodes for this year. Uh, I'm sure you're sad about that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sad as well. But uh, in some amazing news, I can confirm that all of our old episodes, both the classic ones and the uh, forgettable ones, are available for you to listen to and work through literally any time of day, uh, any day of the year that you like. Uh, So if you'd prefer to go over some particularly good or important episodes first, we have our three compilations of of episodes on different themes. The first of those is called Effective Altruism, an Introduction. Uh, And in fact, this episode uh, is, is in that group of 10 already. The second is called Effective Altruism, 10 Global Problems and it covers all sorts of specific challenges and and projects that people are working on to make the world much better. And then the third is more recent uh, from from this year and it's called the 80,000 Hours Podcast on Artificial Intelligence, on uh, AI of course, uh, but it's meant to help listeners learn about the potential upsides and downsides of powerful and transformative AI models relatively quickly. And here's a couple of episodes from the archives that reminded me of this conversation with uh, Ajaya in some way. There's episode 102, Tom Moynihan, on why prior generations missed some of the biggest priorities of all. Episode 105, Alexander Berger, one of uh, Ajaya's uh, colleagues, on improving global health and well-being in clear and direct ways. And... On the philosophical side, there's episode 139, uh, Alan Hayek on puzzles and paradoxes in probability and expected value. And most recently, episode 163, Toby Ord on the perils of maximizing the good that you do. All right, the 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Karen Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our site and made in this case by Sophia Davis Vogel. We'll be back with a new normal episode soon. In the meantime, stay safe and happy.